it's Amanda, and I'm back with another episode of the Made for TV Mayhem show. Um, I'm back with both my co-hosts and a special guest, so I'll just start by introducing everybody. Hey, Dan. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. How's it going? Good, good. We uh, we just put up our tree. Oh, you and, did? Uh, yeah, it, it looks lovely, and one of our dogs, George, is eyeing it suspiciously <laughs> as if it is a special gift just for him. So we're uh, I'm keeping one eye on him and one eye on the... Uh, on the setup here. So. so so we should expect some excitement tonight. Possibly. Possibly. You know what? My pets might uh, be running the show tonight, too, because <laughs> I am podcasting from the kitchen because my husband is sick and my office is upstairs. And since he's passed out, I don't want to be doing the podcast next door to him. And tonight, for even though my cats haven't moved in like three days, they decided <laughs> today was the day that they'd be really energetic. Mm. And they've been crying for help all day. So Or not help, oh. attention. So. Oh. Is yeah, I should a... say help. That sounds horrible. Because <laughs> we should feed them, maybe. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I'm also here with Nate. Hey, Nate. Hey. So what's going on? Oh, not much, except I suspect my new husband is slowly poisoning me to death. Oh, that's so typical. Is it Walter <laughs> Brennan? Are you married to Walter Brennan? I am. <laughs> that's really sad. I would hate to be married to Walter Brennan. No offense, but... Well, do you, do you, then I guess you feel bad for Julie Harris. I feel really bad for Julie Harris because he's a codger. He is. He's, <laughs> he's so mean. Codger. He's super mean. And for those out there who don't know what we're talking about, uh, Nate is referring to one of our two movies for the night, which is Home for the Holidays, the 1972 ABC movie of the week, um, starring Walter Brennan and Julie Harris and a few other famous faces. And we're really excited about that. Our second movie is A Very Brady Christmas, which brings us into the theme of dysfunctional families. So we will be talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly with Christmas holiday gatherings. And we're doing it with a very special guest. And I didn't write an intro for her, and I was going to re- just read the intro out of one of her books. And, of course, I left the book upstairs in my office where I normally podcast. So uh, I'm going to wing it. <laughs> we are here tonight with Joanna Wilson, who is the Christmas television expert. Yay. Yay. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Amanda. Hi, everybody. It's uh, Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on. I know you're really busy in December, so I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us. And I've been looking forward to this, so this is great. Yeah, it should be fun. Um, I'll I'll let you do most of the talking about yourself because you know yourself better than I do. But I will say that uh, Joanna and I discovered each other through our blogs. Um, She kind of crept onto mine and made it left a comment. And I went over and I was like, wow, this is all about Christmas television. And at the time, I think you had published one book, which was The Christmas TV Companion. Correct. And... um, it was really good. It's a it's a really uh, quick read. It's really just about like the crazy stuff you see on TV. It's not every Christmas special, but it's every weird Christmas special. Um, and it's it's a really great read. And that led into your encyclopedia, which is a heftier, much heftier tome uh, that's really wonderful. And I use it for reference. Um, Me too. Yeah. yeah, it's a pretty incredible book. Uh, it's got, I think, Pretty much everything. I don't know if there's anything that you couldn't include in there, but I have yet to find it. And you've just written a new book. Do you want to tell us about that? Yes, I I have, uh, in, in addition to three Christmas entertainment books, I also have two local history uh, nostalgia books. I live in Akron, Ohio, and so I, I, uh, I'm part of a community builder here, so I'm really embedded in, uh, in Akron, Ohio. And so I have two local history nostalgia books. I wrote, my latest book just came out. It's called uh, The Story of Archie the Talking Snowman and Akron's History of Christmas Attractions. It's about a 20-foot-tall talking snowman that's in the center of our mall and has been for the last 47 years. It's pretty hilarious. Well, there was kind of a snafu with Archie, though. Didn't he disappear for a while? 
Yeah, uh, the mall was actually, it, it was sold um, in uh, the early 2000s to an out-of-state corporation that came in and took one look at this 30-year-old Christmas attraction, this 20-foot tall talking snowman, and said, what the, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> Put it in the dumpster, and Akron residents went nuts. And uh, it took a couple of years for people to rally and to come together, but eventually they uh, joined forces and created a social media uh, <clears throat> force for themselves and uh, got the city to uh, support them and provide them a space. And they rebuilt Archie down in a downtown uh, area, so that <laughs> a public area, so he could still be visited by uh, youngsters, but also a space large enough to accommodate, you know, something that large. Right. And um, in the meantime, the, that mall, can you believe it, actually went into bankruptcy. Oh, geez, really? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so the city uh, claimed it, seized it, and wants to keep it open. They don't want, a, a you know, an abandoned mall right. here in Akron. So they, um, the city hired a management firm to come and manage it, and they wanted to bring people back to the mall to say, hey, we're still here, still come back. So what did they do? They moved Archie back to... The mall. So Archie is back where he started and uh, everybody's happy and our traditions continue to live on here in Akron. So it's uh, it, it's an inspiring story and it's also a Christmas story. Well, it's it's really interesting because so I guess we all grew up in different parts of the country. I grew up in Las Vegas and I could be wrong. And if anybody uh, that listens to this podcast lives in Vegas and they can contradict what I'm saying, then I would love to hear it. Um, and we'll have feedback information at the end. But I don't remember us having some kind of iconic figure at anywhere that we would go and visit. And I don't, I don't remember being like that even when I lived in LA, although I'm sure in LA there's gotta be something, but it, there was not like, cause you were telling me that there's all kinds of Christmas stuff that comes up every year, but for some reason, Archie really resonated with the town of Akron. Yes. And, and we're lucky that we have this tradition that we uh, like to have and, and and share with our children and our grandchildren because he's been around for 47 years. But I also discovered that we have, Akron is a unique place. We have a long history of Christmas attractions and Archie is only one of seven talking Christmas attractions we've had here. Wow. So our city is lousy with talking Christmas things, apparently. <laughs> we've had talking, we've had multiple talking trees. We've had talking raggedy end dolls, nine foot raggedy end dolls. Uh, I know. Uh-uh. Yeah, I know. And uh, we had a talking reindeer. We had a talking horse. I mean, this goes back into the 40s. This wow. is crazy. But um, we used to be the rubber capital of the world. And so we <laughs> oh, had... you're going to hear that, by the way, too. That's not, <laughs> that's, not, that's, not, that's not a silence buzz or anything. That's just a buzzer. <laughs> it shows up, just so you know. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So we were the rubber capital of the world. And so we had a, a strong economy throughout most of the 20th century. And uh, we had downtown department uh, stores that were locally managed. And so they were really competitive and they competed for those shoppers' dollars each Christmas. And so we actually had a very unique Christmas culture and uh, Christmas attractions that competed with cities much larger than ours. So um, Akron is a special place. That's pretty fascinating, actually. It was so interesting when you first were writing the book. I think you were doing the research the last time I actually saw you in person a couple years ago now, two yeah. summers ago. And um, you were at the library just going through old newspaper clippings. But I remember thinking, wow, Talking Snowman. But there's just so much more than just... He symbolizes something, you know, he's bigger than just a big snowman. He's like, 
so culturally ingrained in Akron. And I just think that's fascinating. So I know people are going to want to read the book. Um, <laughs> what's the title again? The Story of Archie the Talking Snowman and Akron's History of Christmas Attractions. Okay, and it is uh, 1701 Press. Is that what it's called? That, yeah, and they can find the book at 1701press.com. Perfect. Okay, and we'll do that again at the end in case people didn't catch it. Um, so, obviously, Joanna knows her Christmas stuff. And um, <laughs> yes, she's yes. also, if I'm correct, a pretty big Brady Bunch fan. Oh, yeah. We are going to have a really good time tonight. We're going to do a couple things first before we jump into the movies because uh, the last podcast, we lost Nate like half an hour before we realized we lost Nate because Nate's actually very quiet. A lot of times he just waits till we say his name and then he'll say whatever was on his mind. And um, and so I thought he was just being really polite because we're doing the breakdown <laughs> of the of a movie called Through Naked Eyes. Uh, and and then it turned out he had like texted me and like emailed and I was like, oh, wait, he's been missing for like half an hour so. He actually wanted to participate in the conference, and he had some really interesting connections. So just to give a quick breakdown on the movie, it is like a 1983 TV movie that, that um, is about two people peeping on each other uh, consensually uh, while there's a serial killer killing people in this apartment building that they both live in. And Pam Dauber stars in it along with David Soul. It's a thriller, obviously, and it's a pretty interesting movie. And, Nate, what were your thoughts on it again? Well, my first thought is I think Pam Dauber's hair should have gotten a credit. <laughs> uh, it was very mullet film. Yes, it was, um, it was very, very 80s, and I love 80s, so that's, that's a good thing. Does she remind uh, you of, like, every shot on video horror movie you've ever watched? Yeah, like maybe something like Las Vegas Bloodbath. Oh, yes. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Las Vegas Bloodbath is reaching. That's a, that, There was some crazy hair in that movie. <laughs> well, those are the gorgeous ladies of oil wrestling. That's right. Oh, yes. I, guess so. I was thinking of the woman with the Tina Turner wig. Where they get their head cut off and he walks around with her head oh, in the back. That, that is Las Vegas Bloodbath also, but that's yes. a... That's, that's the hair thing. I always think of when I think of hair. But I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. So go on. Oh, no. It's fine. Um... And I said, I really liked the way she utilized at the end everything that she had in front of her and threw it at the killer. It reminded me very much of Alice from Friday the 13th, throwing everything at Mrs. Voorhees, even little piddly things that's not going to stop anything. (laughs) Well, which is interesting because at the beginning of the original Friday the 13th, doesn't that woman throw like empty boxes? Yes, (laughs) empty boxes. That's (laughs) That's where they store all the empty cardboard, empty Open cardboard boxes at Crystal Lake. Not to go off on a tangent, but my husband, he hasn't really done it yet, but he's, I don't think he realizes he's done it, is what I should say. But we've started counting all the empty boxes on Charlie's Angels. There's a (laughs) lot of boxes. They they end up in a lot of storage units and stuff like that, you know, warehouses. And there's a lot of empty boxes. That's great. Do forklifts go through a lot of them and stuff? You know like what? That? People fall on them and stuff. Yeah. And and every time, I don't think he's he notices that he's noticed it, but I've been noticing it. So whenever we're watching <laughs> it and there's like a fist fight or something and somebody throws a box, he's like, there's an empty box. So <laughs> it's. I think I might develop a drinking game for it. But I like that connection between Alice because I mm. didn't make that. But you're right because Alice... So the thing about Pam Dauber, and, I, and I'm reassessing my thoughts on her again, is that I felt that the end of that movie... Um, during the scene where the killer shows up in her apartment is where we lose the strength of the character because she ends up becoming, she has to be saved by David soul at the end. I'm not giving too much away here, but you're pointing out that she actually was fighting and she's pretty spunky, just like Alice. Like she's determined, even though she's their nail clippers or whatever she has in her hand, yes. that she's going to hurl those at the killer and hope for the best. And I mean, so she's actually kind of thinking on her feet. So I want to reassess all those horrible things. I thought about Pam Dauber at the end of the movie. 
which I didn't, but I thought the character was so strong through the whole film. And then I didn't like her being the victim, but you're right. She's not the victim. So I'm really glad you brought that up. And did you like the movie? Yes, I uh, very much enjoyed it. I was glad that uh, you recommended it because that's the first time I watched it. Yeah, it was kind of a fun discovery. So, And did you want to say anything else about it? Um, no, I think uh, you, you both covered it very well on the last show. <laughs> we covered all, every inch of it. We did. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I normally do feedback at the end, and we have some feedback that I will do at the end. But we got a, kind of a long email that I want to get. And I say long in the best way possible. It's a really wonderful email, and I'm really touched that the person took the time to send this. Um, but I want to do it first because he asked a question for everybody. And if Joanna wants to participate, I'd really love it. And this came from one of my favorite podcasters out there. His name is Chris Clayton. He's AKA the Gora boy from his old other podcast. And he hosts a podcast with a friend of his named Tom Elliott called the strange and deadly show. And we've started corresponding with each other and he's a really cool guy. And he took, he's been listening to our pod. They both actually been listening, which is really nice. They took the time out and listened to a few episodes and he sent a really, really nice email. So I want to read this first and then we'll get on to the movie. So here we go. Dear Amanda, Dan and Nate. Howdy. Chris here from the strange and deadly show. The Internet's bad boy, not really, has arrived on your shores like a very weak and not very impressive looking Viking conqueror. I've become quite taken with your show in the last few weeks and inspired in part by your genuinely lovely dedication to our show on your most recent episode. I felt I simply I felt simply I had to write right in to let you know how much we appreciate and enjoy what all of you do with the internet full of recycled ideas it's quite refreshing to find a podcast that touches on new ground we perhaps take made for tv movies for granted these days as there are simply so many of them but the sheer abundance of them means that you'll never be stuck for material to draw from if there's any show that's going to legitimize some of these movies and put them against any theatrical release in terms of quality, I firmly believe yours is the one to do it. Even though Tom and I listened to, the, oh, I'm sorry, even though Tom listened to the show first, something I have no, I have no doubt he did for bragging rights, I soon followed, and. And though I admit that much of what you guys discuss is completely new to me, I feel I am learning as I go. The movie of the week is much more of an American tradition, and indeed, TV movies are the same. We're now blessed with them on a multitude of channels over here, and my mother is quite a fan of them, regularly watching channels here like Lifetime and True Movies. She actually prefers TV movies to regular ones due to the lack of violence and swearing. Again, I have to confess to my shame that I never really pursued them with any great interest, but one of my favorites is Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, one of those TV movies that has grown around reputation is considered a legitimately great movie i own that one on blu-ray and i enjoy watching it every year as you well know amanda i'm a huge horror fan like yourself and i think the ones i'm most interested in are tv movies that still have the creepy factor to them i'm now interested in seeing bad ronald too thanks to your extensive review of it and i've no doubt that countless others will follow as i hear about them the power of a great podcast is making people interested in what you're discussing even if they know nothing about it and that's something you've accomplished with ease if I might ask a quick little question of you, what one movie would you pick, minus the ones I've already mentioned, for someone like me who loves horror as an example of a great TV movie to watch? Finally, I'd just like to thank you again for saying such lovely things about Tom and I's show. I'm not the sort of person who likes to promote what I do on other people's shows, so I'll just, I'll just say a huge thank you and to let you know that Tom is the one who sounds like the member of the Beatles. He is from Liverpool in the northern part of England and continues to live there. I am from London in the southern part of England, and I've never lived in Liverpool. I'm the one who sounds like a squeaky newspaper seller from a Dickens novel. One of the prices I pay is never sounding good, as good as my co-host, something none of you suffer from, as you all have brilliant podcasting voices. And just so you know, Chris has a gorgeous voice, so he's selling himself short there. Thank you again for listening and loving it so much. I know that Tom and I are big fans of what you guys do, too, and we can't wait to see it growing and growing. 
Hang on in there, never give up, and keep on entertaining us week after week. You'll hear from us again in the future, which sounds ominous, but I mean it in the best way possible. <laughs> Take care. Chris Clayton from The Strange and Deadly Show. So um, thank you, Chris. That email you, was, Chris. was wonderful. I really appreciate it. Uh, and he actually offered to send an MP3 file, but because my soundboard is so iffy, I told him to write it. But I kind of wish I'd let him send the clip because he really does have a beautiful voice. And um, we're all missing out on that. Unless we go to the Strange and Deadly show, which is on iTunes, everybody. Yeah. So yeah, And they oh, they, they do have on their latest episode where they, they – uh, answer one of your emails. Uh, Tom and Chris have a slight argument about who listened to our show first, <laughs> yeah, which is quite charming. It's really cute. And um, and they also covered some really interesting movies. I think they did a David Warbeck movie, The Last Hunter, and then something I wasn't able to watch called The Aftermath. But if, mm-hmm. So they do a really interesting, unique show, and they do a kind of a newfound list of movies that were part of the video nasties called The Section 3, and it's 82 titles. They've done almost half of them. And they... they Pair the movies up on theme, like we've done here, which I think I got their, that idea from their show, so I should credit that. And um, and it's really great. They have a really great rapport. I've said all this before, but I'll say it again. And uh, it's like my favorite podcast. I just love it. I love Hysteria Continues as well, Nate. I will yes. hope Hysteria Continues. Don't yes. forget. But, um, <laughs> but I thought that this was really sweet. But I thought Chris asked a really good question that we should table here for everybody, and that is to pick one movie that you would recommend to uh, somebody who's not that – familiar with TV movies, but loves horror. So I'll just take it around the table and I'll start with Dan. Oh, well, I'm going to, the one I'm going to go for is probably fairly obvious. Um, cause, uh, I, I think Chris and Tom could probably watch it. Cause I know Tom, I think he used to do a twilight zone. Yes. Uh, podcast. And I, I'm, I'm going to have to go with uh Satan's triangle. Oh, I, I thought you might go with that. Which, yeah, which I, st- I still think is, um, you know, this kind of goofiness of Doug McClure can kind of, you know, make you think it's not going to be as creepy as it is because he's so affable and, and sort of charming and big, big guy charming. But as it goes along, it just gets stranger and stranger. And I, I just think it's um, I just think it's very creepy and it's it's well, well worth a watch or two. I actually thought you might recommend that or uh, Kolchak. I, I was thinking about Kolchak, but Kolchak um, is 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 is. There are some great scares in it, but but um, it's mixed with some lovely comedy sure. and lovely action too. So I thought I'd try something that was more just straight up horror. Yeah, I think that's a good recommendation, Nate. Um, I think mine will be Don't Go to Sleep. Oh, I called that one too. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, I, I really really enjoy the film, you know, altogether. But the ending, uh-huh. and I'm not going to spoil it, but the ending just gives me the creeps. As a kid, it terrified me. As an adult, it still kind of unnerves me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I didn't see that movie till I was an adult. And I actually met my husband. We bonded because I was working with this girl who knew my husband. And she told him I liked TV movies. And he said, ask her about this movie about a girl that gets her tie, her shoelaces tied together and blah, blah, blah. And I, so I emailed him back and I was like, oh, that's called Don't Go to Sleep. And he was like, oh, my God. And I think he gave me a Wes Craven poster or something to thank me. But we had never <laughs> met at this point. And, um, and then when like our first two month anniversary or something ridiculous like that, I bought him don't go to sleep and we watched it uh, on a trip together and we were actually at the epicenter of an earthquake. And so we woke up, that's love. Yeah. We, we woke up <laughs> the first night and to a horrible earthquake and we were terrified. And the whole next day was all those like reverberations you feel all day, you know, those aftershocks. Mm-hmm. And we were, we watched don't go to sleep the next night and the end happened right in the middle of an aftershock. Oh. And oh my God, it was the scare! I jumped out of my skin, and <laughs> and so now I always associate the ending of that movie with 
that feeling. And so the the ending is just ridiculously, I think it's effective anyway, but it's really effective now because I'm like, we're going to die every time I watch it. So, um, well, see, to, I, oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, um, I'm sure listening to the hysteria continues. You both know who Grant Grant is. Yes. Oh yes. Um, we, uh, I've showed him don't go to sleep and he said he had trouble sleeping that night because oh, of the wow. ending to that movie. I believe Grant, it. Grant. Well, it's, awesome. And it's got some really great set pieces and it has Valerie Harper. I mean, it's just a yes. winner. Mm-hmm. It's Dennis Weaver getting drunk in the bathtub with his little bar. Does he have a bar set up in his tub? <laughs> <laughs> it's worth it just for that. And Ruth Gordon's in it. I mean, it's got an amazing cast. It's a, it's a great, and it's a, it's a, Oh, what's the word I want to use? It just still is effective. It's just, it's mm-hmm. transcended and lasted all these years. Endured. That's the word I want to use. Joanna, do you have a movie you want to recommend? Oh, okay. Um, well, I, yeah, I have a 1964 TV movie sponsored by Xerox. Ooh. It's not a traditional horror movie, but it is a ghost story. Okay. It's called Carol for Another Christmas. Ooh. And it's written by Rod Serling. Yeah. So it oh. does have an edge, but it's mm-hmm. more political than it is horror. And yet it's a ghost story because it's adapted from, you know, Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Right. And it's utterly fascinating. It, it's really a snapshot of the Cold War politics, and it's got a amazing cast everybody from peter sellers to who um yeah to sterling hayden and um it, it's it's amazing and it's written by lad serling so it, it needs a lot more discussion it needs a lot more exposure more people to seek it out and and then begin talking about yeah. it discussing it you know i have a copy of that and i actually thought maybe i should have picked that for us when we were doing this after we decided on the films because i haven't seen it yet but my husband did get me a copy so mm. next year joanna you're coming yes. back and we're yes, next year. Yes. And we'll pick up one of the Christmas Carol remakes and we'll do them. Oh, so it's already decided. Winkler? Are we thinking oh, Winkler? Oh, we could do yes. Winkler. But when I love that one, I was thinking of the George C. Scott straight remake. Oh, I yes. love George C. Scott. And that's a great um, remake. Anyway, I think that's a really good recommendation, too. I wavered on this, so I'm going to cheat and do two. Um, they're not really, one's not creepy, but I think. I know Chris likes kind of intelligent films. Like he loves horror, all horror, and it doesn't necessarily have to be like the smartest thing ever. But um, I, I think there's this really clever uh, thriller by Levinson and Link who created Columbo called Murder by Natural Causes mm. and uh, with Barry Boswick, uh, Hal Holbrook, and Catherine Ross. And it never fails to give me chills at the end. It's so smart, and you get so involved in the characters. And even though it's not necessarily scary, it's definitely thrilling. And it's one of the smartest mysteries that I can think of that was ever produced for television. So I'm going to recommend that. But for scary movies, I really wavered on this. I went back and forth. But I'm going to go with something, if you like monster movies, um, I'm going to go with the Norlis Tapes which was sort of the antidote to Kolchak in that it was about a guy that didn't set out to prove the monsters exist. He set out to debunk the existence of monsters. And it starts out where somebody just finds a tape that he left. He's missing. And the whole story is told through his tapes. And it was a pilot that never got picked up, uh, written by William F. Nolan. I think it might have been directed by Dan Curtis. I'm not actually sure. Um, Maybe John Llewellyn Moxie. It's brilliant. It stars Roy Thinnes from The Invaders. And it's got some really great moments in it it's uh, super atmospheric and it's uh, it's really straight faced despite the fact that it's absolutely ludicrous especially when you get to the monster and oh there were so many movies i wanted to pick but that one kept yeah, coming you, up in my head you, you know what amanda i just realized the movie the other movie i should have picked and you probably know which one 
it would be the Mud Monster one. Oh, you know, I didn't think of that one. I wasn't sure like how well that translates to people who don't know TV movies that well. Because I thought about Gargoyles, mm. which I think is along the same line. That's sort of a childlike, whimsy kind of movie. Although I think mm-hmm. Gargoyles is really good, but it, I think it benefits from the fact that I saw it when I was five. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. I think the Mud Monster. So we're recommending a bunch of movies, but um, yes. Uh, so if you can slide in the Mud Monster there, I think uh, that would be a good one too. Which has another title, The Force Beyond. Is that? Uh, I'm the World Beyond or Beyond. The World Beyond. Yeah, okay. I think that's it. And isn't it? Is it Granville Van Dusen or Frank Converse? It's Van Dusen. Uh, the Van Dusen. <laughs> I love awesome. them both. I th- I actually think they look exactly alike. So I'll take either one if you want to drop them off at my door. Um, I'm into both. But um, yeah, so those are our recommendations. And if you go back and listen to our other shows, I mean, we throw out a thousand titles at a time. And when I get on my break, which is in a week, I'm going to actually start making a list of some of the movies we've talked about for people who listen and don't have the option of writing down these titles and might forget them. So um, thank you, Chris. I just wanted to get that out of the way uh, because I thought it was a great way to inter- get it out of the way. Sounds so horrible. It's uh, it's a great way to bring in the show. I'm really glad that people are listening from all over the place that are interested in TV movies. And um, I hope he enjoys what we're doing next. So we're going to do Home for the Holidays. Now, there's no intro that I could find for this so we're just going to go right into it like as far as I know I've never seen a commercial or a VHS trailer for it just that opening theme I played is basically what I have and some sound clips so we'll just let Nate go ahead and lead us into the story oh sounds great you're invited to a fun-filled December evening at the Morgan family ranch the roads have been washed out so you can't leave you can't call for help the phone is dead and a very special guest is about to put in a surprise visit but it isn't Santa Claus It's a pitchfork-wielding psychopath who's home for the holidays. Four sisters are summoned home by their ailing father due to his suspicions that his current wife Elizabeth is slowly poisoning him to death. Though the sisters disagree on the validity of their father's rantings, it soon becomes clear that someone wants to silence the girls as well. But who could it be? Eldest daughter Alex, the protective mother hen of the sisters? Frederica, the alcoholic beauty obsessed with her mother's suicide? Joe, the selfish, promiscuous divorcee who can't wait to leave? Sweet and innocent Christine, the dependent baby of the family? Or is it really Elizabeth, a convicted former murderess? Or perhaps someone else? That's the back of the video blurb on the VHS tape. (laughs) That's so good. That's so (laughs) good. (laughs) I love the, the old VHS for this. It came in the big clamshell. I have it. Oh yeah, it's it's great artwork too. The artwork's actually very like uh, creepy. Yeah, it is. Um, well, it's got but, the rain slicker. It's got oh, all yeah. the iconic pieces of the thing Sally Field looking distressed or whatever. It's cool. I really love the film. I think the cast is amazing. I mean, it's 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 one of my favorite like ensemble casts all, all together. Like I don't think there's a weak link out of any of them. You know, I thought that uh, Sally Field was uh, really strong as kind of the final girl, quote unquote, of the movie. Yes. I thought she did really well at that. I absolutely love uh, the daughter, Joe. Yeah. And I'm like her, she's got some of the best lines, like her line about she wouldn't even come back to have the pleasure of seeing her dad's coffin closed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, her dad also has some good lines for her, and I actually have a clip of their first uh, meeting together after all those years. So let's listen to that. So you came. You all came. Christine, you were so young when you left. 
Is it graduate school that you're in now, or haven't you started yet? No, I'm in my first year. Joe, I stopped counting the husbands after the third. So did I, after I found out you didn't have to marry them to sleep with them. As I remember it, you found that out in junior high school. Frederica, poor Freddie. Is it pills or alcohol this time, or both? Please, isn't it enough that I can't? You think so? After nine years, my loving daughter, you keep taking those pills, and one night you'll go like your mother did. Shall we talk about what we're supposed to be here for? I kind of let the lightning go there for a while and the thunder. Um, <laughs> it was appropriate to accentuate the, you know, the ending of that scene. <laughs> well, he was just, you know, how long has it been? Like seven years since the last time he saw his kids? Oh, yes. I don't think he cared about any of them. He didn't act like he did. Mm, no. I might argue that point at when Frederica dies because I felt that he was kind of distraught when he got the news. Do you disagree with that? No, actually, you know, yeah, I think you got a point there. It's just, he's so like, I don't know, like, um, grouchy and, <laughs> and just mean, generally yeah. mean this whole film. Well, he's, he's not f- fun grumpy. Yeah. He's, he's grouchy. Well, I mean, it's, it's insinuated that he basically drove his wife to suicide. Right. So they're a very dysfunctional family and that, well, for a lot of reasons, but, but the, the crux of it is, is that their mom died and they all pretty much blame him. Although I would say Frederica play, pays the biggest price for the suicide of the mother. She's basically like following in her mother's footsteps. And, and she feels like ever since her mother died, that was it. You know, nobody's going to love her the way she, her mother loved her. And so there's a lot of like, what do you want to call that? Water under the bridge. <laughs> Like more so than, you know, a lot of other families probably. But, um, but at some points I actually think, well, I don't know. We could look at it a couple of different ways. We know later with the, I don't know if we're going to give the ending of the film away or not. I mean, it is a 40 something year old movie, but the, uh, I think it's also sort of insinuated that Eleanor Parker's character, I can't remember what her character, Alex, Alex, she's kind of putting thoughts in her dad's head too. Right. I mean, because the poison, the idea that he's getting poisoned, I think she gave him that idea, didn't she? I mean, I don't know if they they explicitly say it, but I mean, I've always thought that was kind of implied. So, I mean, part of she's kind of she's kind of emotionally blackmailing him and doing things to him as well. So, I mean, I don't know that I think he's as terrible. I think in some ways he's sympathetic, um, not super sympathetic. I think I think each time I've watched it, I, I've had a different feeling when um Freddie f- dies there. I, I I think one time I thought he he was he he had real he was feeling really bad f- about it. And then another time I think he was thinking, oh my god, this crazy woman is is going to kill all my kids before she gets to me. Oh and, uh, yeah, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, and uh, and then we we want to kill Sally Field. Come on, what kind of crazy oh, are you? <laughs> um. And so we should also probably talk about the girls' names. This is like my favorite part to talk oh, about. Oh, yes. And I know we've done this already in the first podcast. but So they all have female names that are cut down into boys' nicknames. So Sally Field is Chris. Uh, Jessica Walters is Freddie. Jill Haworth, I think I'm saying that right, is Joe. 
and Alex uh, is played by Eleanor Parker. And I think that there's a reference to that somewhere in the movie about how he wanted boys. And I think that's also part of where the dysfunction comes from. I think he kept like getting his wife pregnant, trying to get the son that he always wanted. Yeah. That was part of the explanation of the unfaithfulness of, Oh, right. That's why his wife committed suicide. She couldn't give him the son that he always wanted. And that's why he was, that was the justification of him being unfaithful with Elizabeth and eventually marrying her after his, his first wife, you know, left, died. I think I have that clip. I'm not sure. I have a clip that I'm going to play because I think it's the right one. So this is, did Freddie say that? Do you remember Joanna? I think so. Okay. I I think think so. I think this is the right clip. She knew he was carrying on with that woman. Why? Why did he do it? Did he think she was going to give him the son's mother couldn't? That murderous old Chris, sweet girl. You didn't know what was going on in this house. You were just a child. I remember. He'd leave mother crying in her room while he drove across town to see her. Elizabeth Hall. Elizabeth Hall Morgan now. Mother would have left a note. Not for him, for us. She loved us. She loved us. I haven't been loved since the day she died. Of a broken heart. Didn't she she die of a broken heart? Didn't she die of a broken heart? Yes, Freddie. Yes, I guess she did. That might actually be my favorite scene in the movie, but I... Oh, go ahead, Dan. Oh, I was going to say that is my favorite scene in the movie. Just uh, the way she delivers the didn't she die of a broken heart. Just um, just that that I'm, I'm tearing up a little right here. To my it's utter podcast embarrassment. Although I did, I did notice one thing about it this time that I didn't realize is that when she's saying that line through the majority of that line, we're seeing over her shoulder and we're seeing Sally Field's face. Right. And Sally Field's face is kind of looking at her with a bit of, oh, you poor drunk gal. Okay. <laughs> that, that's kind of the look she has. Yeah. And I thought, why John Llewellyn Moxie, the director, correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, why not? You know, Jessica Walters acting her heart out there. Point the camera at her. Well, I mean, the performance is so good. It was like there's this really great scene with uh, Peter Falk and Murdered by Death with the whole camera. They did it in Pritzi's Honor, too, uh, with Jack Nicholson. It's his back acting. Yes. And and I think that they were maybe letting her sort of back share act. the scene. Well, yeah, you know what I mean? But there's also a really great scene in Dallas with some back acting and Cliff. So <laughs> I pay attention to my back acting, just so you know. But uh, th- I think the scene also is a really good example of how loaded the dialogue is. There's a lot of information coming from almost every line in the film. And... Uh, like, this is the first time I really caught... There's a lot of clues as to who the killer is early on. I don't remember ever picking up on that before, like, really paying attention to the film, you know? Because I sit down and I watch it. It's it's a really scary movie, but it's also kind of cozy because I've seen it so many times that I think sometimes I take for granted how artistic it is. I mean, there's some really great camera work and the score is outstanding. <clears throat> and because um, I'm not paying as much attention to it as I should, but there's a lot of just loaded dialogue that I love. There is... <laughs> It's 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 very and I, I think I think uh, 
I think I mentioned this on on a previous podcast, but it does have that very sort of. Please service. don't die, Joanna. We want you to. We want you to live. We want you to live and love. Um, it has it has that very early seventies thing, and I think the movie I used in the past was The French Connection, where oh. things are said and things happen, and you're just sitting there watching it, enjoying it, absorbing it. But then it isn't until you go back and watch it that you realize that with all this dialogue, they've set so much stuff up yeah. that you you might not have caught the first time you watched it. You know what movie did that was uh, Barton Fink. Do you remember Barton Fink? Oh yes. Yes. Like, mm-hmm. it's just really like, with the second time you watch it, when you know what's happening, you're like, oh, my God, they totally just telegraphed it to you, the whole film. But mm-hmm. because you don't know what's going to happen. You know what I mean? Yes. You don't pick out how clever the dialogue is. And it's Joe Stefano. who Yes, wrote Psycho. Uh, or wrote, the adaptation of Psycho. Adaptation of Psycho wrote some of the best Outer Limits episodes. He wrote Snow Beast. Yes, he did. I put that. That was in my notes. You know, that's interesting because Home for the Holidays – uh, I can't remember if I wrote down if I was able to, I don't think I was able to find how it rated, but I think it did do really well in the ratings. And, you know, Snow Beast was the number one program the week it aired. Yes. Yeah. So um, he was really knocking it out of the park as far as TV movies goes. He kind of knew his format. And, you know, it's interesting because I think, I don't, obviously Psycho is a great film, but I think people sort of denounced a lot of his TV work. That's really sad because it's really quite brilliant, a lot of it. Not that Snow Beast is going to, like, win Oscars, but <laughs> but that's a good popcorn film with some really yes. good, like, action kind of thriller moments in it. And I think people take that for granted, that he was just a master of understanding the medium and probably the budgets and things like that as well, you know? I, I Can I just say something that I think is a crime? I just looked at the Alvin Merrill book, his first edition, uh-huh. and, and in the cast list, he doesn't have Jessica Walters' character listed. Because he's a jerk. Wow. With that great mustache, you'd think he'd be less of a jerk. That's really weird. <laughs> wow. Wow. Oh, man. I'm going to have to throw okay, out my I'm... copies of this book then. Oh, I'm sorry. I just noticed that. It's a little, little bit of a tangent there, but wow. Mm. I wonder how you left her out, why you'd leave one of the sisters out. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you had to leave a sister out of your synopsis of it. What sister would you leave out? I mean, I don't think I could leave any of them out. Yes. Yeah, they're also integral to the story and to their and their ends are amazing, like the ones who don't make it. And like because uh, like uh, Jill Haworth, um, I mean, that's iconic. You know, yeah. death is iconic. And, you know, it's interesting because like the pitchfork is in the film, but it's not necessarily in the whole film. It's just shown and stuff because, you know, Frederica doesn't die that way. Yeah, but everybody remembers the pitchfork. Um, are we going to spoil the ending, or do you want to leave it? I'm going to leave it up to you. Oh my goodness! I don't. I really don't. Really (laughs) don't want anybody to spoil it. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but I really want to talk about the ending. Yeah, the ending's amazing. So I will say, uh, I call that the Moxie moment or the Moxie twist. I put a little hashtag usually in front of it. Because he has several movies that end exactly the same way with that twist. And uh, so if you've seen No Place to Hide, Not Strange Dead, like, oh, Taste of Evil, or Home for the Holidays, then you've seen the twist. It's always effective, even though he does it all the time. So if you want to talk about it, I mean, I'm totally yeah. into it. Maybe maybe we'll we'll yell out like a uh, I'll keep an eye on the timing here and we can just do a yeah, we can just... a spoiler and I'll and I'll say like no more than five minutes from now. Okay, right. that <laughs> sounds good. All right, so we'll we'll do the spoiler then now. Okay, um, so at the end, you know, we find out that Alex is the killer, and the scene where 
Chris flags her down and is getting all hysterical talking to her. And I love, love the way um, Eleanor Parker, is that her name? Mm -hmm. Um, How she portrays that scene because she just kind of has this resolve. Like, you know, she's like, oh, you know, Chris came to me, so now I can take care of her too. And she kind of just has this almost like, um, you know, it's, it's like a demented calmness. Right. While she's talking to her and basically admitting that she's the killer. I love the music in the scene and I love the way it's filmed. And I think that Sally Field and Eleanor Parker like knock it out of the park in that scene because the way um, she looks at her, they both look at each other when Alex steps out of the car and she sees the boots she's wearing. Yeah. She knows those are what the killer wears. Like uh, that moment of realization is, is uh, really well acted. I mean, I really love it. Since uh, since we we're going ahead and spoiling it, I think there's a scene at the beginning. We haven't talked about the doctor who's played by John Fink, and he really doesn't serve much of a purpose except he's so totally cute that <laughs> he had to be in the movie. But um, at the beginning, when he's talking to Eleanor Parker's character, um, Alex, he says to her, he says, are you still mothering the girls to death? And right. that's your clue right there, right? You know, she makes this face. and Because nothing's happened yet, right? But it's the plan is in effect. That sets the tone for when you get to the end of the film and you see that she really has mothered these girls to death. I wanted to point out the doctor does have some purpose. He he has known the girls since they were younger. So he's some sort of context for all of them. He's he's sort of on the outside. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, he's he's worth it to be in there. Um I just wanted to point out that he's super cute, that's all. Well, well, he definitely is. Oh, I almost hung up on oh. you. Okay, there you are. Okay. Oh, no, don't hang up. You were me. dropping. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, my Scott uh, messed out on me. But anyway, what I was, was going to say was, um, like, I watched Eleanor Parker's performance, you know, obviously now watching it knowing that she's the killer. And I love, like, watching her performance because I do think she kind of throws a lot of subtlety in there. Yeah. You know, uh, and I love her reaction also when Joe tells her that, ever since Alex showed her the note that Joe had this weird feeling they'd been tricked into coming there. And then of course, like she immediately tries to like say, Oh no, no, you know, and tries to whitewash it immediately. But it's just interesting that the second anybody shows that kind of suspicion. Well, there's also this kind of like when she doesn't, she get her, like you can see there's sort of like this, okay, well, I'm just going to have to kill you because she's like, okay, well then you can borrow my car. And you know what I mean? And then you're like, Oh, she's done. Yeah, I, I think she tried. She tried to keep Joe there. But yeah, she was and just like, well. she deserved it. And I, I was wondering too if if she did kill everyone, what it would be like in the house. I mean, and she was able to cover it up. You know, I, I don't think I always imagine it's like there's a movie called Don't Go in the House, um, where yes. a guy has a very oppressive mother. I love that. And when she dies, the way he acts is. He turns on his music really loud and jumps around on the chairs, yeah. throwing things. That's almost how I, I saw like a variation of her doing that, like going into the house, cranking the you know the Vivaldi, right. and just like throwing things around and going woohoo! Finally, this place is mine. Yeah, I guess she. It's interesting. So, and I want to direct a lot of the Sichuan too because yes, um, so we only have one more minute in the spoiler zone. Oh, okay. So, um, yes, I do like that part very much at the end where she like well at the end the very, very end when everything's revealed and she thinks she's gotten away with it, just like those expressions. Oh, yeah. She made. And I don't know if anybody here has seen She's Dressed to Kill. Have you guys seen that? It's a 1979 mm-hmm. TV movie about a bunch of models out in the mountains 
and they all start getting murdered. And Eleanor Parker plays Rashid. Oh, I have seen that. You know That's great. That's Eleanor great Parker yeah. plays this uh, old kind of over-the-hill fashion designer who starts stealing her underlings' fashion ideas. Peter Horton plays her uh, assistant. And she's so, like, unabashedly – it's like she's in a different film in a way – the way her eyebrows arch and dart around and like her line delivery. And at the end here, like she's really restrained through most of the movie. Right. And then at the end, it's just like, all right, the Eleanor's coming out. You know what I mean? It's all uh, coming ding, out. Ding, ding. Do I, we want to expand the spoiler realm for one more minute? No, no, or no. Joanna, I mean, unless Nate wanna... has something he wants to say. Oh, I think we covered it. Okay. Or does okay. Joanna want to say something? I just, I love this movie. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. It um, is. I want to ask you, though, so you watch a lot of Christmas, uh, a lot of Christmas television as from old to new yes. Um, yes. And movies. Have you? Is there another movie like Home for the Holidays that you've seen made for television? No. And that's one of the things that really charms me about this one is it's really unique and, and it really separates itself from all other Christmas TV movies and especially anything contemporary. There's nothing, you know, being made oh, now yes. that would even come close to anything. And one of the things that really makes this separate and distinct and unique is it's just got this really consistent tone and this feel. Yes. Um, and I, I just love immersing myself in it each time I watch it. You know, the paranoia, the madness, the hysteria, the helplessness, yeah. these family secrets and the moral judgment between all the sisters and the, and the father and, and even the mother, the stepmother. Yes. I mean... Certainly family dysfunction is dealt with again and again in a lot of TV movies, but not in this way. This really is a special movie and it's quite distinct. And that's one of the reasons it, of course, it stands out, but that's another reason I love it. It's worth seeking out and finding. Definitely. Well, it did come out on DVD, it turns out. Uh, you can find it in eight packs and I think a 15 pack. You know, those are the DVDs that come out from Echo Bridge. Yeah. And I, I have it. I haven't been able to view that copy of it because I have a VHS, mm. so <laughs> which yeah. I just put on. But um, but I've heard the transfer is not so bad. So it actually finally became available after years and years of being sort of lost. Good. You know, to the whatever. So many TV movies get lost. Yes. Too many. Yes. Um, so I don't know. I mean, there's not a lot of Christmas in it, but then Christmas is there. Uh, like, I don't know if this is a good question yeah. or not, but like, what do you think about, do you see any tropes that you've seen a lot? Like they have the Christmas dinner and do you, with, if they had not said it was Christmas, would you really know it was a Christmas film? Do you think Joanna? Um, yes and no. <clears throat> Thematically <clears throat> it's got, you know, it does have tropes, the family returning, right. The reunion. And um, even the reluctant family returning. I mean, none of these daughters want to come. They are sort of, you know, emotionally blackmailed to return home because their father is making these outlandish claims about being poisoned. Um, That's, you know, that's done again and again and again. And this is an early example of that, but it's, it's here too. And each time they run up and down the steps in this house, um, their, you know, their family home, you know, they are running past the tree. It is all visual. um, Right. Having to readjust to the stepmother, um, whether they like her or not, that is a very common Christmas, um, you know, element in 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 Christmas stories on in in movies and in television yeah. shows. So they're on the one hand, they're not saying Christmas, Christmas, Christmas constantly, and we don't see them open gifts and we don't hear them talk about um, Santa Claus, and there aren't little children. But at the same time, it is Christmassy, and you can't right. really forget it. Yes, you could make this movie without it being Christmas, 
but um, it does add another layer of emotional uh, yeah. distress by making it Christmas, and I like it that way. I think it's um, more provocative because yes, because I mean I don't know how many movies came out. When did that movie? Um, oh my God, is it called Silent Night, Bloody Night? That was seventy three. So that actually. This predates even that movie, right? So were there any other Christmas horror movies before this? Hmm. Or is this actually the first? And I mean horror straight up, like a proto slasher or... When did Tales, Tales from, from the, the Crypt? Crypt. Yeah. Oh. The John Collins. <laughs> yeah. mm. I love mm, That guys, may have been 73 <laughs> also. I, I have a book nearby I can check. Let me okay. lean. Because um, what's really interesting about it is that... I mean, there's so many... And I think Joanna brought up so many things in the words she used. The madness and the paranoia. But it's also like cynical but not in a way that you know makes turns you away from it you know what i mean because it's really like oh my god families suck you know what i mean and it's yeah. got that vibe but it's not that, like that tales from i'm sorry to interrupt that tales from the crypt movie with uh is 72 oh okay hmm. so all right so we've got a competition going to see which one came out first well that's really interesting because i don't remember i don't recall seeing too much before that that really um had that kind of let's take christmas and make it into something terrifying which i think you know as a metaphor for some people is pretty accurate because sometimes you have to go back to your family you have to indulge you know them in these sort of uh traditions and it always ends up just being really painful for everybody but you find yourself constantly doing it year after year you know what i mean and so I guess you could probably translate it over like that if you're thinking on those lines. It must have also been kind of shocking to audiences to like, oh, a Christmas movie. Hey, they're killing everybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So it must have been, I would love to talk to somebody who saw this movie when it originally aired because it must have been a little bit, it, it, not to the same extent, but I would be curious to see if it had the same kind of feeling. Like, you know, when we see Friday the 13th now, we don't think anything about it. Oh, she's throwing empty boxes, right? But like in 1980, like to be in the theater when you didn't know what it was, was probably like, oh my God. This is like so scary. And I would be I would be curious to see how people felt about Home for the Holidays without all the horror films that would follow. Well, later. and I will point out that, you know, they're still shocking. You know, Christmas sure. horror movies are still very shocking. And that's why they still are being made yeah. every year. A new one comes out. It's still uh, a threatening uh Thing that we all feel viscerally and that's why it's still relevant yeah it's the one it's the one time of year you want everyone to be nice to each other and not to bring out the pitchfork right <laughs> yeah and i did have to lean further than i thought but it was a 1972 according to the encyclopedia oh, of I, horror films i think joanna one. answered that did you joanna thank well, you, you. <laughs> I, I i wandered out of the room i thought the book was right next to me it was in the next room i'm, I'm sorry Oh, no, that's good. She stole your thunder again. And I bet she just went through the little Rolodex in her head and was like, oh, yeah. I knew it was 72. Or, I was thinking of Vault of Horror is 73, the sequel. Okay. Well, that's really interesting, though. I, I, I guess it's not like a hidden fact, but that it was probably one of the first, if not the first, at least American-made, sort of take advantage of Christmas in this sort of way. Because it is a proto-slasher, too. I mean, it really, like, uh, predicts a lot of the same beats that slasher films would have later and it predates black Christmas by two years, which also, which did it even more so, you know, for eighties horror. So it's yeah. just a, it's a curio, you know what I mean? It's just kind of an interesting movie that kind of showed up and it hasn't been touched since apparently. So 
And it's still as, fun to watch. Yeah, it is. It oh, is. Yes. And, and as far as the atmosphere goes, living in Southern California, which I'm I'm guessing is where the movie takes place. Is that where it takes place? Um, you know what? I don't know if they actually say where it takes place, but they had to use oh, rain instead of snow because they did shoot it here in California. Yes. Yeah, that's so so I I always thought that it's probably shot somewhere in Southern California and like December, January, February, that's when we get rain. So all the rain coming down, right. that would be that would be correct for the climate. Yeah, it's kind of interesting too that it's not snowy cuz I mean, mm. I would that's what I would expect. And it's just but I think the storm is better because I think with snow, unless it's a snowstorm, I feel like snow you can navigate through a little bit better than yes. slushy. Snows, yeah, more pastoral and lovely, whereas yeah. rain, when it's coming down on your head, it's just uh, yeah, give me excuse to wash out the bridge. Yeah. We get, yeah, exactly. We get thunder snow here sometimes, it's a lot of fun. That sounds amazing, actually. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> I used to live semi close to Joanna in Pittsburgh, and I really, really miss winter. Yeah, me too. That was the best. I miss snow. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm here in Texas and it's kind of cold, but like 50, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not really the same kind of cold. Although when I go running now, I feel like a superstar because I can, I don't have to wear gloves. So I'm like, what is 50? What? And everybody's like totally freezing to death. So I always, I always like Amanda's voices when she describes herself in stories. What is 50? What? <laughs> I'm like the least toughest person on the planet too, which is, that's why it's so funny. I don't know. Is there anything else we should hit? Well, we should say this is an Aaron Spelling production. Mm. Yes. Um, I think one of his early, he was already making TV movies at this point. And something really interesting about Aaron Spelling since we're on the topic is I don't think people really think about him as a TV movie maker, but he was pretty much on the forefront of it starting in the late sixties. I don't know if the first movie he did was the ballad of Andy Crocker, but um, that was like 69. So he was, he was right there and he did a bunch of movies. And if you check out his book, a Primetime Life, I think is the name of it. Hold on, I'm grabbing it right now. Um, and you go to the back of the book. Unfortunately, he didn't talk about Home for the Holidays, but he does have a very small section right at the end of his book where he discusses some of his favorite TV movies that he produced. And he just gives like a little blurb about like working with the actors or why he liked the movie. Oh, the first TV movie he did was actually the Over the Hill Gang in 1969. Mm. So, which I remember seeing when I was a kid. Oh, with Walter Brennan. Yes. And Walter Brennan, who won the Academy Award three times. You know, I don't mean to put him down, and I know this was kind of the end of his career, but he's like scenery chilling big time. Yes, yes. Well, it's it's, it's after years of playing uh, the grandpa on the Real McCoys sitcom, <laughs> yeah. where he was sort of the, the more charming version he of, of that. settled into it, because he's so bug-eyed about everything, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. He, he was always curmudgeonly and, and elderly like that, had a little yeah, hitch he, in his giddy-up. He was always yeah, 65. Even, even yeah. in 1936, yeah, yes. he had that. So. <laughs> Great Walter Brennan. And I think Eleanor Parker was uh, quite a bit older than the other sisters. She was only a couple years younger or older than Julie Harris. She was yeah. 50, I think, when, she, when they made it. And I, I don't remember how old Julie Harris was. I guess Julie Harris would have been younger because she just recently passed away and she was only in her 80s. And this movie's 45 years old, right? And Eleanor Parker was in her 90s when she died a couple years ago. So... Um, it's kind of interesting. It makes me think of eight is enough because you know, um, what's her name? Joni was older than Betty Buckley, Abby, <laughs> just a piece of trivia. That's a good one too. Yeah. So, 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 you know, so, uh, so yes, Aaron Spelling produced it. He did a lot of amazing TV movies like Satan's School for Girls. I think he was really good at horror 
And I think I may have told the story, but I'll tell it again. So I think he raised his daughter really well because I went to a tour spelling estate sale years ago. His daughter had a bunch of horror movies that she was selling, including curtains. Wow. And she had some TV movies and uh, like Cruise into Terror or something like that. They were in her collection. She was selling them, but they were in her collection. And mm-hmm. I think it's pretty cool that yeah. she got raised on horror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's all. Just an observation. Awesome. <laughs> so, Nate, is there anything you wanted to add? I don't think so. Okay. Well, I have some trivia. I'll just go through it a little quickly. It's not much. You know, it's interesting how popular this film is. There's very little documentation about it at all. But uh, Nate and I did a podcast uh, forever ago when he had his own podcast called The Axe to Grind Show, which I think might still be archived on Blogs Talk Radio. Do you know, Nate? I don't know. I haven't been on there in so long. You're not stalking your old podcast to see? No, I'm not We're listening. <laughs> he did a podcast and it was just, uh, uh, just him talking about horror movies. And, um, the first episode he did was about TV movies and he asked me to come on and we talked about a bunch of movies like the spell and dark night and scarecrow. And this was one of the movies we talked about. So, um, I took all the trivia I dug up for that and I'm reusing it here. Um, the tagline for the movie was there's nothing more chilling than a warm family gathering, which I think is on the VHS. I don't know if that was the actual ABC movie, the week tagline. The original air date was November 28th, 1972. It ran against Hawaii 5.0 and a theatrical film called pretty poison, which was airing on CBS and on NBC. It aired against uh, Bonanza and an episode of the bold ones, which is pretty cool. I think the bold ones just came out on DVD, didn't it? Yes. Yes. So um, I've only seen a couple episodes, but I, I remember being pretty good. So everybody should check that out. It was, as we talked about, written by Joe Stefano, um, who also wrote Snow Beast, which Dan got. Oh, he, uh, Joe Stefano actually began his career as a singer and dancer in New York. I don't know if anybody knew that, but he was actually doing musicals before he got into writing. D- did he do that? Was that the, the Joe Stefano review on Broadway? <laughs> I don't know. Is that a real thing? I don't know, but it sounds oh, fantastic. Like, I'd what? watch that. From the, the screenplay, uh, guy wrote the screenplay for Psycho. Yeah, I think that would be pretty I'd happy. I'd go see that. Happy go lucky kind of thing. I did find a rerun for Chris, uh, Home for the Holidays. It actually ran on Christmas on Channel 10 in Sarasota in 1973. I don't know if Channel 10 was a network or not, but I found that listing, so I wrote it down. Because it actually got a Christmas Day airing, which was been really fun. Like, hey, let's get out the roast and open the gifts and watch Home for the Holidays. Oh, my God, everybody's dying. So, and then uh, Home for the Holidays came out on video in 1986, and as I mentioned earlier, got a DVD release to Echo Bridge uh, in 2013. It was shot in Calabasas. Uh, the fake snow could actually not be generated, so they went for rain, and um, sometimes the sky can be seen as blue, despite the fact that it's raining. I don't know if anybody caught that watching it. Um, we talked about all the nicknames. Also, supposedly Kim Novak was offered the part of Alex, but had to decline when her mother suffered a stroke. Home for the Holidays would have been her TV movie debut, but it had to wait another year when she started in Third Girl from the Left, which I, I don't know where I found that trivia, but I'm sticking to it. It sounds amazing. I don't know if anybody here has seen Third Girl from the Left. It was streaming on Warner Archives Instant, and it is on DVD, and I highly recommend it. I think she would have been good as Alex, but I think Eleanor Parker is pretty hard to match, so I don't know that she would have been as good. That's just my own personal opinion of that. And the house that was used in Over the Holidays was actually used in Crowhaven Farm, which I did not know. Fantastic. Yeah. That's <laughs> and that's my trivia. 
<laughs> for the holidays. I guess we'll just go around real quick and we'll see if anybody has any final thoughts. Dan? Final thoughts? I, I think it's a great time. I um, I, I always – um. I I forgot how great the uh, the sequence is where the one daughter is stabbed with the pitchfork in the back. I always forget how uh, how awesome that moment is where it's just her, and then all of a sudden her eyes go wide and her mouth opens wide, and she drops, and there's a pitchfork, and it and, always seems to... and there's blood on her back. Yeah, and it's yeah, it always seems a little more um, graphic than I remember it being. It's, it seems fairly graphic for a movie from that era made for television. Because I don't know, has anybody here seen a movie called Paper Man? With Dean Stockwell, because no. that I think the movie, well, it's it's kind of a proto slasher in a way, but there's a, there's scenes in it that seem like they're going to be graphic, but they're not because they're made for television. And I think to me that's how I picture most TV movies of that era with their violence. Like you think it's going to lead to something, but you don't see everything. Mm-hmm. And in this movie, it's obviously not very gory, but the fact that mm-hmm. they splash some blood on her back, yeah, I thought was kind of startling, you know. And um, her hand is sticking out of the ground later yeah. on and stuff. That's, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I love it. I mean, I think to me, it, to me, it, um, it's, it's very much sort of a wonderful thriller. And then about halfway in, it becomes a proto slashery sort yeah. of thing, which I really love. So it's, uh, it's one I quite enjoy and I've probably watched. I, I watch. I watched every Christmas for the past three or four years, oh. I think. And um, I've actually, for this podcast, the previous one we talked about, I've watched about five times. Oh wow! So, so I like to watch things. Yeah, you, know? you do. So. I I watched it twice in like two days in a row. Like I watched it Friday night, and um, and then I watched it. Well, I, I took a day out in between, and then on Sunday I watched it again while I was doing stuff. And um, I'll tell you the score which is um, by somebody named George Allison Tipton, who I'm not familiar with, and I feel stupid for not being familiar with them, is amazing. Yes. It's so beautiful, and I kind of wish there was... Oh, look, he did the score for Empty Nest. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's a beautiful score, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I love the way the score begins as if it is a Christmas carol that we almost know, and then it becomes kind of ominous yeah and i i really i really like that it, it goes so, so well too with like the storm setting like how the, yes. the, the storm starts and then the music oh you know what he did griffin and phoenix which is one of my favorite tv movies he mm. did a lot of tv movies but he also did badlands well terrence malick's badlands mm-hmm. or that's what wow. it was yeah wow so um it's interesting because so he did home for the holidays then he did badlands and then he wow. went back to doing tv movies which is what he did predominantly and then some tv shows he did petrocelli um and then he, he did some, it looks like a game show. And then, uh, oh, he did Soap. He composed the music to Soap. Oh, wow. <laughs> he did some stuff for Love Boat. Um, he, didn't, he didn't write the songs for This House Possessed, did he? No, no, no. That is, Damn. Oh, oh, my God, Billy Goldenberg, uh, who okay. I met. Uh, he did the music for the Golden Girls. I don't know if he did all of it or some of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Golden Palace. And Empty Nest, so he worked with a... Oh, you wow. know, it's interesting, because Paul Junger Witt, wasn't he one of the producers on this? Yes. Yeah, and Tony Thomas, yeah. Yeah, so and uh, so he worked with them predominantly. Uh, that's interesting. This yeah. is what happens when you don't do your research till you're actually doing the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Look at it's that. more that's, exciting, I think. That's so interesting. I just discovered that. So, uh, George Tipton, wherever you are, I don't know if he's still with us, but I think we're your biggest fans now. Yes. Yes. So... I don't know. I can't tell if he's still alive or not, so I'm not going to depress us if he's not. Um, Nate, do you have anything else you want to say? It's my favorite made-for-TV film. <gasps> it is. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I don't remember. Was that the one you picked in our top three for number one? 
I think it is, yes. It was, okay. yes. I okay. Believe so. Yeah. so so you're consistent and you're not lying. No, I absolutely pick, love this movie. Okay. Although pick the, the next film, film we're talking about is a close second. Oh wow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. Yay. I think it would be funny if every movie you saw though, like at the end you just be like, This is my favorite TV movie. Oh. <laughs> Through naked eyes. This is my favorite TV movie because that's pretty much what I say after every TV movie I watch. Actually, so it's okay if you want to do that. Um, is there anything you wanted to mention that we didn't talk about? Um, oh, I love her chase scene in the forest. Yes, that was a great scene. Oh, I is, forgot to mention that. That is a great scene in the film. Yeah, there's a lot of. It surprisingly got some really interesting, like kind of chase set pieces. Um, not well, one chasing, but I mean, like the set pieces are really, really smart and on it and thrilling. Joanna, yeah. <clears throat> Pardon me. Yeah. I just want to point out I'm a huge Julie Harris fan. She played uh, the stepmother Elizabeth in this movie. Yes. Whenever I see her, I can't help uh, remember her role opposite James Dean in the East of Eden. Mm-hmm. Classic Hollywood cinema. Um, but I want to, you're I missing want to, Lily May from Knott's Landing. <laughs> I wanted to point out that she's in four more Christmas movies oh. after this. Four more Christmas TV movies, Ooh, I should say. Do tell. She is also in the Hallmark Hall of Fame 1978 production, Stubby Pringles Christmas. Oh, wow. That sounds amazing. It is. And it's pretty good. And it's uh, it's an ensemble cast, but Bo Bridges is in it. And she's also in the 1988's Christmas Wife, opposite Jason Robards. Oh. And in 1994, TV movie called One Christmas is an adaptation of a short story by Truman Capote. She plays a... Cousin Sook character, huh. and Henry Winkler and Catherine Hepburn are also in that movie. Uh, what? Yeah. In yeah, wow. and then Julie Harris is also in a 1996 Christmas TV movie called The Christmas Tree. She plays a nun with a and, and her other lead character, or her other lead actor is Andrew McCarthy, Brett Pecker, Andrew McCarthy. Uh, so she's done an uh, an awful lot of fun stuff at Christmas. Andrew McCarthy. I have to stop for a second. Sorry. <laughs> Gives me the vapors. I actually saw him in person. I helped him once at a bookstore I worked at. He's very nice. Oh, good. Um, he's beautiful. So, yeah, you know, we didn't talk an awful lot about Julie Harris. So just real briefly before we go, I feel like we should give her her due here because we've talked a lot about the sisters and their dysfunctionality. But um, she's such a good red herring. Yes. Yes. She's like, she kind of knows that they're accusing, well, she knows they're accusing her of poisoning, right, him. Like, that comes out pretty early on. But, like, she, the way she, like, sort of delivers her lines, like, with the tea, do you remember she makes tea for uh, Sally Field? Yes. You know, and there's just these things where you feel like, is she playing with them? Um, It's a really restrained performance, but I feel like there's just enough sort of ominous tone behind it. And at the same time, she's also really sympathetic because so Chris and her kind of bond early on and Chris kind of gets this feeling she's innocent. But she's had a really hard life because not only did she get accused of murdering her husband, but then she had to come back to the town where the scandal happened and then live with these people. And she's the other woman. Right. Right. So it's just a really amazing performance. So I'm glad you brought her up. Yeah, I may I may I, I just just realized a um, fun movie that you might pair with this, which isn't a Christmas movie, um, but has a bunch of ladies. Is, uh, <laughs> is the Golden Girls? Uh, I was. Is it what's what's the one where the, are the ladies the the friends? Is it Five Desperate Women? Oh, is that it, would be so uh, good. Yes, I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, where the the five great actresses go to an island and Robert Conrad is there in tight pants and there's someone killing them. So. It's it's a very entertaining. Movie. That's a really interesting combination, and uh, 
I kind of wish I thought of that. Well, so maybe maybe in three or four years down the line, we can do we Home can for the Holidays and match yeah. it with that. But that's a really good. So if anybody out there hasn't seen Five Desperate Women, I highly recommend it. It's got Stephanie Powers, Bradford Dillman, and Joan Hackett, and Denise Nichols, and Anjanette Comer, and Robert Conrad. Okay. I think I named. Oh, oh, and uh, uh, oh my God, Julie Summers. Okay, I'm done. Yes. Done. Okay. All right. So I think that's it for Home for the Holidays, unless Woo-hoo. anybody wants to throw another last thing in. <laughs> Because there's so much to talk about, I feel like we might forget something. But and then we can move on to real dysfunction, the Brady Bunch. Oh boy. Uh, Let's be honest here. (laughs) Cuckoo. (laughs) Yes. 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 Yeah. (laughs) In any real world situation, like they kind of portrayed it in the Brady movie, yeah, they would be really, really scary Um, and creepy. But they're just lovable on television. Mm-hmm. So I've got a commercial here. I actually had two TV spots, but for some reason I only uploaded one of them. So um, I'm just going to go ahead and play it. Here we go. Let's play TV trivia. Perfect. Can you name the TV family America fell for 20 years ago? Let's skip this question and go right to the bonus round. Can you name these three TV kids? Dopey, Kathy, and that What TV bunch is coming home for the holidays? It's a secret. It's a very Brady Christmas Sunday. Pretty exciting, right? I can't wait. So that was for the premiere episode. Um, I believe that was the original commercial for it. It's it's kind of goofy, but I think it captures the goofiness of the movie itself, which aired in 1988. And I'm just so what I did was I I actually wrote about this movie last year and for my blog, and I realized that pretty much what I said in my review is what I want to say here. So I'm just going to read my blog post, um, and that'll be my breakdown. So. Here we go. As an antidote to the tumultuous 60s, the original Brady Bunch series planted itself deeply into the roots of 50 suburban dreams as seen on shows like The Donna Reed Show and Leave it to Beaver. At the same time, it was never popular enough to enter into the top 10 Nielsen ratings, but persevered for five wonderful seasons without ever stepping one foot outside of Pleasantville, USA. And it became a foundation for kids like myself who saw this perfect family as a way to escape the tumult that followed us into the 80s and beyond. Like Star Trek and the Monkees, the Brady Bunch took on a life of its own and became a phenomenon that still packs a sentimental punch today. Um, Losing Amby Davis two years ago only served to remind us that all that sap and romanticism was still there and we still loved it. So I wrote this after Alice died, sorry. A Very British Christmas is one of the few holiday movies I make time for every year. And with the Bradys especially fresh on my mind because of Anne, it seemed like the perfect TV movie to review this season. Critically speaking, this Christmas TVM was a bit of a bust, but it was also ratings gold, ranking at number two in the Nielsen's for the week. Also for fans, it reignited our love of the makeshift family of of eight and Alice. And knowing their audience, the reunion movie maintains much of the softness of the original series with just a touch of an edge, testing the waters for the short-lived new Brady series, which aired in 1990, proving that you can't keep a good sitcom down. A sitcom term, soapy drama, not so much. A Very Brady Christmas begins with Mike and Carol living alone in the same house, but made perfectly 80s, including two exercise bikes and a rowing machine in the den that the kids used to run amok in. So it's different, but still as comfortable as that warm blanket I snuggle up with when I watch this movie. Each spouse is planning a Christmas vacation for each other, but realize that the holidays are best when the whole family can get together, and a reunion is underway. The first to return is Alice, who was recently dumped by Sam the Butcher. This is probably the one part of the movie I take any real issue with. I mean, it's a Brady movie, and I'm forgiving, but breaking Alice's heart is so not cool. But it does have one of the best uh, scenes in the movie. I have a soundbite of uh, her letter that Sam left. 
Dear Alice, I lied to you. I wasn't working nights plucking chickens. I met a younger woman. At first, we just traded meatloaf recipes. Then one night, she asked me over to season her rump roast. The next part's kind of blurred. That's my tears. Hmm. I guess I'm an old fool, but I fell for her like a pound of ground chuck. That no good two-timing meatmonger. That snake in the grass. That low-down conniving. Mrs. Brady, that's my husband you're talking about. Sorry. Okay, we're going to get to Alice in a little bit. Trust me. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a we bone. Now. I've got a bone to pick with Sam. Get it? Right. Okay. <laughs> Alice moves back in and insists on putting her maid outfit on, despite the fact that she no longer works for the family. <laughs> she had it with her. Or I don't like... know. A characteristic that would disturb me if it were any other show. Then we find out what's happened to all the kids. Here's your checklist. Marsha is still gorgeous and is now a housewife and mother, um, which I found to be kind of a disappointment considering she seemed like she was doing really well in the fashion industry when she met Wally and the Brady Brides. Greg is now a doctor and is married to the new Gidget, which I think is pretty cool. Jan <laughs> it was. Jan is still working as an architect and is still married to stuffed shirt Philip, who I love more than life itself. But now that he's gone from associate professor to a full-time academic, things have become strained between the two. Peter is a business guy who is also in a relationship with his female boss. I believe a swinging lifestyle would come into play in the Brady's, and it's time to revisit that show. Cindy is about to finish college and looks an awful lot like Jennifer Runyon. Um, according to <laughs> IMDb, Susan Olsen couldn't make it to the reunion because she was getting married. Finally, Bobby is experiencing life in the fast lane, literally. He's now a race car driver, but has yet to tell his parents. I remember the Brady's in the Brady's he marries Martha Quinn and suffers some serious injuries in a race car crash. The drama. As we can see, everyone is still so Brady, but enduring their own dramas. Of course, once a family gets together, forget about it. Saccharine-induced awesomeness commences. Robert Reed, who had a fairly public love-hate relationship with the series, really enjoyed the reunion and stated in an interview, quote, I haven't had this much fun in ages. We really like, we are really like a family, as corny as that sounds. I guess corny is the key word here, but if you reserve any tenderness for the Bradys, this movie hits all of the right goofy beats. Admittedly, I always get slightly reclamped at the end when the family belts out, oh, come all ye faithful, while standing vigilant around the collapsed building Mr. Brady is trapped inside of. There, I said it. A holiday classic. There Chicken plucking. Sam, come D on. Did he have to make puns in his breakup letter? Well, you know, yeah. the whole thing is he's so obsessed with freaking meat products that he can't, like, think outside that. I bet that's something to do with his dad. <laughs> I bet his dad was a crazy butcher. I was going to say like something that. about porking people. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, <it's possible. laughs> I was going to say a rhyme about the chicken plucker's son. Well, did, I, am I, I the only it. one here that wondered if Alice and Sam had makeup sex? <laughs> Where in the house? Oh, well, oh. she has. she's the only one who technically, because they have to arrange uh, the setup to, to fit everyone in the house. But I would get Alice's, guess Alice is the only one who still has her own quarters there back behind the kitchen. Yeah, I don't so remember she's probably, them moving her out of there. Yeah, she's probably, her and Sam are all set and I'm going to i got to sit down for a moment. I'm not sure what's happening over there, Dan. <laughs> no, no, I'm just... Uh, I'm, I'm about, think about Alice and Sam together. So I don't know what that's... that's it's a uh, mind-blowing moment for so many yeah, of us. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a little much. Yeah, it is. But, I mean, 
Well, I appreciate that they needed some sort of conflict to get Alice back into the house, you know, back with the family at Christmas, but they didn't need to go that far. Yeah. Couldn't they have created some sort of family illness or something smaller that could be reconciled a lot more gently? Maybe she then, just like working. They could have given Alice the um, Sam went to see family thing plotline yeah. okay, yeah. and given given Greg a better plotline. Well, I know uh, Joanna and I have actually talked about Alice at length. And Alice at length. Alice with at Amanda length. And Joanna. And because <laughs> because she gets shit on so much through the series and we were talking about like there's that episode where she meets a guy I'm Joanne I'm sure remembers it better than I do and Mike finds out that it's a con artist do you remember that where she comes home and she's dancing was it like an old friend of hers or something right he he ends up asking for money or you know some sort of support or something yeah and it's that's like kind of an iconic well, like she's- She's always unlucky in love. Yes. I mean, that's part of her thing. She can't even get, you know, she can't get um, Sam to propose to her throughout the entire, you know, run of the series. Um, She's unlucky in love. It's, she's already older, you know, she's an older woman. She's already a spinster, you know, in in the late 60s, early 70s. It's just heartbreaking all around. She has that crazy sister who's into fitness. (laughs) That's right. I forgot about her sister. I wow. think Nate brought up that uh, episode where all the kids are really horrible to her. Yes, they're mean to her in that one. I and, felt really bad. And she quits. Oh, yes. Yes. Well, oh, you know, wow. it's interesting because in that uh, episode, you know, um, so, yeah, she finds out all the kids basically are, are, you know, against her now. And it cuts to her talking to her friend and she's crying. And it's actually a, a serious scene, you know, while, while she's crying about it. Yeah. But in this movie... Like her husband has dumped her for a younger woman, and when they have her first show up uh, on the doorstep, it's like a very exaggerated comical cry. Right. Like yes. it's played for comedy, not not to be serious at all. But our hearts yeah. are breaking. I know. That's that's what's that's, so odd about it. The 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 contrast is so odd. Yes. It's yes. and and because there's no laugh track in sight too. Right. And, and they, they seem to it seem and on occasion it seems to be edited for a laugh track, but there's no laugh track there. You know what? I would say that they actually performed a little broader too, to like to get it out there that that was the punchline. There are moments when I thought I heard a laugh track, but I realized <laughs> it was only in my Have mind. Have you ever watched like Love Boat, the last season? Because there's no laugh track. Oh wow! And what happened? I don't know. I don't know if there was a laugh track, and when it went into syndication, they got copies that didn't have a laugh track or what. But like, if you watch it on, they were rerunning it recently on MeTV. They did the Christmas Cruise with Peter Scolari, I think, is in that episode. Um, so of course, I watched it, and um, <laughs> there's no laugh track. Well, that's there. The when um, Columbia House was releasing Green Acres on VHS years ago, one of the tapes came out, and the four episodes on it didn't have the laugh track on it. Luckily, it was still funny because Green Acres is funny. Oh, it's really but it funny. was very weird to watch it because everyone's pausing, and there are you know long reaction shots right. and it's like during, a ver- during very Brady Christmas, especially during the dinner scene when Alice kept coming in talking about the pies. Right. I <laughs> thought I kept hearing a laugh track in my head, and it, I. That's it, just because Alice is funny. She, she is. is. She's very. Uh, she plays comedy very well. She does. She's she was. Well, you called her the comedic backbone of the show, Nate. And yes, I don't know yes. that I could describe her any better than that. Which is why, in my fantasy 
Brady Bunch that I built <laughs> when I was in high school. Uh, it was Alice, Mr. Brady, because it's always Mr. Brady. No Mrs. Brady, because I don't like Mrs. Brady. Um, Greg was away at boarding school. Marsha, I think, also might have been away at boarding school. I think they were away, They were both away at boarding school. I can't remember. <laughs> and Peter and Bobby hung around, and so did Jan, because I always related to Jan, because everybody relates to Jan. And Cindy just had never been conceived. <laughs> and that was my dream. Brady Bunch. I... <laughs> when Alice wasn't with Mr. Brady, she was just I, helping I, out. I will say this. When I did some research on the Bradys, if you go on IMDb, there are a couple threads, well, at least one thread on there, where people – begin to expand beyond when the Brady's ended. Oh, really? And doing like, here's what we think should have happened after. And a lot of it involves um, uh, Mike dying <gasps> tragically, which they thought might boost the ratings. That's like Three's Company flash fiction or fan fiction. Have you guys oh, ever, like, researched that? Because, you know, everybody wanted him to end up with Janet, Jack and Janet, and mm -hmm. she married Philip. So in some fan fiction, Philip is an abuser. And wow. I guess... Wow. Janet ends up with Jack at the end, but they make Philip like a horrible, horrible guy and her life completely horrible so that she has to come back. So I guess they also have to do something with Vicky, but I don't, you know, when he left to be in three as a crowd. Um, I don't know what became of Vicky though. Maybe they just murdered her on the streets of LA or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's how fan fiction I, works. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. There's, um, I, well, I can, can I, just just going back to Very Brady Christmas real quick. One of the things I really liked about it when I watched it about a week ago was it is it has a really lovely structure to it. Everyone gets something to do. Right. Mike and Carol get a little bit more to do. But everyone gets just enough to do so that when it ends, you feel like everyone did something. Now, possibly Wally does more than Marsha, um, yeah. which you can – you could take either way. Wally's charming, certainly. Oh, I like Wally. I like Wally. But, but, um, but, uh, uh, and, and Greg, like I said, Greg doesn't actually have a plot line. You know, my wife can't come to Christmas this year because she's going to see her family isn't actually drama. No. It's what happens to couples. That's actually really interesting. I feel like Greg got kind of pushed to the side in this. He did, but he had, he, he grew that mustache for it and everything. He did. You know, it like, looked good. And that, <laughs> that, 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 that scene when they cut to him, Dr. Brady, both my wife and I laughed hysterically. And then we were like, oh no, he really is a doctor. Wow. Oh, and a gynecologist. <laughs> we wow, see him deliver like, a baby. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's, and I, I would say, I watched it with my wife. Her favorite moment was during the opening credits when they're running around the set and the camera is like it's outside the window looking in at them and and Mr. Brady is just looking in every drawer every nook every cranny and then he finally goes into the kitchen he opens a drawer and he's in his um like workout yes, suit yes, like the track the movie, suit right. and he turns and he just goes now where is my checkbook and he puts his hand on his hip and he just kind of looks and my wife laughed and she thought that was possibly of all the moments in the Brady Bunch, that was the most camp moment in all of the Brady Bunch. She she thought he's so great. She said, well, he's great. My checkbook. It was fantastic. That's that's kind of a fun like they're exercising. I don't know. I liked uh, yeah. I like the Brady's. I like where they ended up. I mean, I feel like as a movie, without knowing that they were going to do this TV series, which I did watch, that that they put them in a really good place. I mean, just the parents. Well, I, I liked the the exercise bikes. I saw that. I liked that they 
put these Brady's in, in a very Brady Christmas released in 1988, they really put them in the eighties. They were no yeah. longer in the early seventies and seeing them on the exercise bicycles in those tr- crazy track suits. <laughs> yes. Yeah. One of those Lights things that, is- that really made them contemporary with her full hair. Like she wasn't even sweating. Yes. Yeah, of course big, not. She had amazing hair. I have to say as much as Florence Henderson's character makes me irate on the original series. Okay. So here's the thing. She would go to the grocery oh, store, right, Mrs. Brady, and she would take all of her freaking kids, six kids, to carry a bag each, but Alice had to take the bus and come back with whatever groceries she could carry. And what's with Alice having to go pick everyone up? Right. I agree with that. And Does when did Al- Alice learn how to drive? When did Alice learn how to drive? That's the question I was just about to ask. Because she couldn't drive on the show. Mm-hmm. She gave Mr. Brady her bus pass at the end of an episode, I remember. Yep. Uh, it's all about Alice. So, you know, what's really interesting is, um, you know, the, I listened to this Young and the Restless uh, recap podcast. That's amazing. And they were talking about this character on the show named Sharon. Sharon's obviously a lot different than Alice. But um, she brought up a really good point about Sharon. A lot of people talk about Sharon online and they write into the, this podcast about Sharon. And she's like, you know what? You can say what you want about Sharon. But at the end, we're still talking about Sharon. And that's yeah. what Alice is. So, yeah, like, I feel like when we talk about the Brady Bunch, even though she's not a Brady, you mm. end up always talking about Alice. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I, because I, my my favorite of the kids is Jan, and it's always, it's always I been love Jan. Jan. I love Jan. And she she she's the one who gets sort of the sort of kind of mature plot. Like, I guess Bobby semi gets that too. Yeah. With his one to change the thing, but it's like Jan sort of gets like her plot line is almost. Out of like a episode of thirty something or, or something like well, that. Well, she she follows space. in her dad's footsteps or stepdad or whatever, yes, yes. Uh, and becomes an architect, which I really liked. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked that that he was influential with one of the children, and that that he was close it enough was, to them that they were like, "This sounds like a great occupation," you know. And it was one of the gals he adopted. It was one of the gals, yes. you know. So. I actually have a clip because we're going to talk about Philip and Wally. We've got a lot to talk about with Philip and Wally. Bit. <laughs> um, and I have to, what's really upsetting is I have several clips here, but I put them out of order and I didn't label them. <laughs> so I will edit out if I start the wrong clip. But I think this is the clip with Jan and Philip. Uh, so we should we should uh, probably enter this. So Jan and Philip are having a lot of problems. As a matter of fact, Philip is in the process of moving out when they get invited to go visit the Bradys, and they're living somewhere where it's snowing, so they're not in California, or maybe they're somewhere in the mountains, but I don't think so. They're really on the outs. I mean, like it's at the very end. He's taking his yeah. freaking fish tank with them. Yes. And we all know how Wally feels about his fish if we saw the Bradys. So it's the end of the road for them. But because Mrs. Brady invites him to breakfast, everything becomes much better. Time to get up, Philip. Yeah, uh, uh, just, uh, just... we can explain, Mom. Yeah, uh, we haven't exactly been uh, sleeping in the same bed lately. Uh, uh, we haven't exactly been sleeping in the same house. Yeah, we, we've uh, been having um, problems. Well, Philip thinks I don't love him anymore. Well, you don't. Well, then why would I get out of bed to cover you with a blanket? I don't know. Pity? He even said thanks. He hasn't thanked me in months. Moving from associate professor to full professor has made him impossible. I have my work. Okay, you have your work. You know, being an architect isn't easy either. But I made time for us. To me, a husband and wife are more important than the migrating habits of the gray leg goose. Gray lag goose. Gray lag goose. Sorry. I didn't even know you knew it was a goose. 
Well, of course I knew it was a goose. I was proud of that research. But that goose kept you from being there the day we cut the ribbon on the Mansfield project. I had to make personal sacrifices. I know. It's just that I didn't want to be one of those personal sacrifices. You mean you really covered me every night with a blanket? Yes. Jen. What? Perhaps we should have discussed this before it was too late. Philip, if it were too late, do you really think we would have come here to spend Christmas together? Jan. Yes? Maybe we should... What? ...have our discussion. <laughs> Thanks, Mom, for bringing us back together. Thanks, Mom. Me? All I said was, time to get up. <laughs> you can be late for breakfast. So they totally had makeup sex. I was about to say, <laughs> what was Mrs. Brady implying there? I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about, like, thinking about Jan having sex, like, in that house. You know what I mean? Where, where's, where's Jan and her husband? Oh, they're just uh, they're just making up. They're just making up. They'll be out shortly. And everybody just smiles. And... Yes. <laughs> Can so, I point out the sheer absurdity of Cindy <laughs> sitting? Cindy sitting at that kid's table is unbelievably yes. absurd to me because Greg's wife shows up and they weren't expecting her and they make room for her. I didn't even notice table. that. That's awesome. But Cindy's still stuck at that kid's table. Yes, yes. And and you wonder why she gets pissed so much. Yeah, I mean, wow. she, she had a right to go off at that yeah. point. She had kind of a badass college life. Like the room and they were going to go on a ski trip. And like, that's exactly how I thought college would be if I was Jennifer Runyon. I w yeah, I was going to say, it's almost like she's in the non-slasher version of like To All a Good Night. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, that's right. She's in that movie. That's so yeah. funny. And I actually thought when I watched Brady Christmas and Home for the Holidays in quick succession this past weekend, I thought Jennifer Runyon into All a Good Night was channeling Sally Field from Home oh, for the Holidays. That's a good observation. The way her character acts. I might agree with you on that. But um, you know, that's going off into some strange well, thing about, Let's talk about Alice. What oh I'm sorry. <laughs> the thing about Jennifer Runyon is that I love Jennifer Runyon. I'll always love her. She's beautiful. I think she's really talented, but she's so soft spoken that when she gets mad, like I, I would imagine that if Susan Olson was in that part, there would be a little bit more strength behind it. But she's just yes. like, I'm an adult. It never it never <laughs> yeah, it's it's a plot line that feel it feels like there should it, it feels like a setup for something that I maybe happened in the Brady's. I don't. I yeah. Don't well, if you watch, if you watch Susan Olsen in the Brady's, I mean, she's a much stronger character than Jennifer Runyon makes her out to be. And I don't want to knock Jennifer Runyon's performance in the movie. It's just that it's not Cindy. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's not how I yeah. kind of, I guess, cause I saw Cindy as she grew up later. Maybe if I hadn't seen the Brady's, it would be mm -hmm. okay fit. But, and I don't know that her story really goes any place either. No, it, it peters out after she, says that she wasn't going to show up originally and stuff and you're like okay that's great but that's um that's not that's not really i don't know that that's conflict because you did show up you know right. it's like you know well they don't really even know i guess until she makes her i'm an adult i'm an adult yeah how how long is she going to be in school for do you think is is she still 
there? Or <laughs> who knows? Wait, wait, wait. We were getting off the topic of Philip and Wally, so I have to go around the table and ask everybody: <laughs> Philip or Wally? Oh, Dan. Oh, oh my gosh. Um. Oh. Uh. Ooh. Gosh, I don't feel like we see enough of Philip in, <gasps> in this. I I really don't. So I mean, Wally's fantastic. I mean, to me. When I watch this, to me, and I've done this in my fiction writing, I think Wally is an author surrogate. I think it's the Schwartz brothers giving them, marrying themselves in quotes to the um, the hottest gal in the wow. movie. I I I've done that all the time in my writing. I've you know put myself. I've created characters in my stories and things that are um, clearly me. And I get put them in situations that I would probably never end up in. So I, I kind of like Wally for that because I think he's the Schwartz um, surrogate, okay. which 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 I which I like. Um, I, I like Philip also, but I don't. Is he in the Brady Brides? Yes. Uh, I feel like I should watch. I've never seen the Brady yeah, you Brides. You pretty much need to watch that. Like. I, I feel. I feel. Here, here's the thing: is I love Jan. So during the sequences with Jan, I'm watching Jan. And during the sequence with Marsha, I'm watching Wally because he's kind of bigger than everyone else right there. Yeah, he's kind, kind of, of got more presence. I kind of, I kind of, I'll accept it. I'll accept it. <laughs> I don't want to influence anybody's answers, but if you answer wrong, I'm taking off a of Skype. Okay, Nate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my pick is Philip. Okay, you can stay. Oh. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I, I I don't I mean I've seen the Brady Brides. It's been a while, but I have seen it, and I liked him in that film. So I mean I guess it just kind of carried over. I mean I I still like him in Christmas. Um, you know I I mean I'd, I I guess I'd say I preferred him to Wally. Yes. Okay, Joanna. Hmm. <clears throat> I kind of like Wally. <gasps> it's like I don't know you. Well, I like Wally for Marsha. Because, you know, on the TV series in the 70s, she's always dating, you know, Doug Rogers and, you know, very serious Who's types. that guy that hit her? Spider-Man. Oh, yeah, Nicholas Hammond. Yes. I can't yes. remember his character's name, but... But very serious types, very, you know, big man about campus kind of guys. And I feel like every time she's with Wally, I always feel like, well, she, she grew up a little bit. She sees something different in him she right. he's more he's more charming he's got more personality he's different than the big man on campus he maybe has more charisma and i kind of like that for her wow yeah. you really is that weird about that no that's amazing <laughs> actually i really like that answer oh, i wish i thought like yeah it's hard for me to argue that, against that I, you know what i have to base everything off the brady brides movie and tv series as well because uh, i love philip i love Philip, I love Philip. And I think he is so cute in this movie. And uh, he reminds me of a friend of mine, actually, and that might be part of it. Um, a really good friend of mine. And if I say the friend's name and he ever hears this podcast, he'll be really upset because he'll be like, I'm not like Philip. And he's, but he just reminds me of him. But anyway, on the TV series, there's, he was perfect. He was so funny. He was the funniest part of the show for a show that really wasn't laugh out loud funny for the most part. No offense to the Brady Brides. I love it. He was always consistently funny like legitimate over the top silly fun and there's this really great episode and I won't be able to preface it right because I I can never preface anything right but they go on the dating game does anybody remember that episode or newlywed game and they meet Bob Eubanks and he invites them both on to the newlywed game and Jan really wants to win so they keep going over answers and they talk about like what's your favorite part of the chicken which I don't know what question that would be but and he and the answer is breasts and thighs so when they're so when they're on the panel 
um, they asked the question, what's your favorite part of your wife or something like that? Your favorite thing of your wife? And, and he can't think of the answer. And she's really putting the pressure on him. Like, if you don't get this right, that's it for you, Philip. And so she's like, what's the answer? We know the answer. And he stands up and he proclaims, breasts and thighs, breasts and thighs. <laughs> and it's seriously like the greatest moment on television that ever happened. <laughs> well, that makes sense why he'd be your favorite then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Does it? Exactly. Uh, oh, unfortunately, everybody, it's that time of night. Oh, I think no. I'm going to have to bow out, but I'm glad I got to discuss the second movie this time around. I am yeah. too. Is there anything else you want to say before you have to go to bed? Yeah, uh, just that the Bradys are amazing. Oh, and I did want to point out that one of my favorite Brady episodes, because you talked about we talked a lot about Alice and Jan is the lost locket found locket when yes. she gets the locket and doesn't know who gave it to her until the end of the episode. Oh yeah. The little bear, the little bear. <laughs> yeah. That was a great moment between Alice and Jan. Yeah. Well, Alice and Jan were kind of of the same ilk. Cause I think Jan felt like an outsider. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I, there's just one thing I want to say to you, Nate, before you go. Okay. Don't be sorry. Just be Wally. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> okay, so you have a good night and right. you want to. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Merry so Christmas. Bye bye. Bye. I probably should have had him go ahead and promote that he has a new podcast out. Uh it just came out today. What? Uh the Hysteria Continues just did a new podcast for Tourist Trap. Oh, yes. Oh yes. It's a good one, yeah. Oh, you've heard it? I have, yeah. I uh, they they put it up on Media Fire, and I listened oh, to it on okay. like Saturday. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, it's so fun, I yes. should have had him promote that. But Tourist Trap is great. My wife met the director years ago. Oh, he lives in Vegas now, or he used to. He used to actually be a professor at UNLV. Yeah, he's. She said he was really nice, and when she said his name, and I said, "Oh, he did Tourist Trap," she was like, "Oh, yeah, I think he mentioned that." I was like, "Yeah, it's a how good could movie. he not?" Good movie. That's a good movie. Okay, but I did so 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 I got did I get the Wally Philip question wrong? I you just did, want... but you know what? I like Wally too. I do. It's just that I love Philip, and I only have eyes for Philip, like and Mr. Brady. And Mr. I will if we had to put him in a hierarchical chain of all the Brady men through the run of the series. I mean, Mike Brady would be number one, and Peter would probably be up there somewhere. And, well, and Peter the, looks really good, I think, in this in this movie. He's well, he's kind of the hunky Peter, I think, isn't he? Or am I crazy? Um, he is the hunk, yes, and he was okay. the hunk in real life. I'm sorry, my husband just texted me. Um, oh, how's sorry. he doing? Is he right about <laughs> he's okay. Peter? Or? He's got one of the cats upstairs, and the cat is okay. freaking out. No, Peter was the hunk. He continued to be the hunk. He's still the hunk. He married that much younger model a couple years ago. Do you remember that, Adrian Curry? Yes, in real life, and they had my fair Brady which was a reality show. And I think they're divorced. Where does that fit in the canon? That would come after the Brady's. Okay. (laughs) But I think they played up the fact that he was really good looking on the TV series. Joanna, do you remember the Brady's very well? Um, Sometimes when you mention some of the plot lines and everything, that brings back memories, but I can't produce it on my own. I think he was a womanizer. Like, I think that woman that he's supposed to marry leaves the show, and I feel like he goes through a series of... Yeah, he breaks up with her, yeah. Fulfilling... it's Mike is going to go into politics, I think. And, yes. Uh, oh, and then they try to blackmail Mike. Yeah, and then Peter, like, has a, 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 a relationship or an affair or something with, like, um, what is it? I'm just going to look at my notes. It's an affair with the abusive daughter of Mike's political rival. Ooh. What? <laughs> so there you go. I don't remember. 
remember any of that. I, you know, I vaguely remember the Brady's. I remember watching the two-hour movie. Yes. And I, and I, I thought, I thought the Brady's, the Brady's was dramatic in the same way that the Brady Bunch was funny. In that, not really is is the way I would describe it. I adore the Brady Bunch, but I rarely laugh at the Brady Bunch. You know what? Um, not to get off topic, but you, you know, right at the end of their five year run, they have an episode where Marsha falls in love with her dentist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's a legitimately yeah, that's funny a one, yeah. episode. That yeah. is a great episode. And also, not funny, but the episode where Bobby is, I, I guess, I think Jesse James becomes his hero. Oh. And he has that wacky dream where they're on the train mm-hmm. and his family gets murdered. Do you remember that? Is that the same episode? And he, and it's just the gun says bang. Yeah. And yeah. the family yeah. members fall. That's a really upsetting, very effective Brady Bunch. Well, there's. I, I, may I just tell my Brady Bunch excursion like two years ago? Please. I, please. Um, it was, uh, I think it was 2013 or possibly 2000. No, it was 2014. Uh, the Hallmark Channel was showing Happy Days from 2 to 5 and Brady Bunch from 5 to 8, oh, Monday through so Friday. And that's when I got super big back into Happy Days. Um, which is, I think, one of my favorite shows. But I was also watching the Bradys. And the thing about the Bradys is they have, what is it like? It's like 107 or 117 episodes. Yeah. And so so what that meant is if they were showing six episodes a, a day, then that meant you were seeing 30 episodes a week. Right. And you could see the entire show in a month. Right. And March 1st was like a Friday. And by March like 29th, I, I literally watched the entire series on the Hallmark Channel from beginning to end, and I saw all the kids grow up. I saw um, fashions change. I saw the mini skirts go up, up, yeah. up. Oh my god, and they the, went up, up, up. And they? then the mini skirts dropped to right above the knee, right at the end. Did they really? Uh, I only remember yeah. the super short skirts because I was like, that's short. The, the, yep, yep. It's it's as the shows go along, the skirts get shorter and shorter and shorter. But then if you go to season five, there's a scene like six or seven episodes into season five where Marsha and Jan are at school together. And that's the scene where you first realize that Jan is now better looking than Marsha, which oh, is a strange thing. I think thing. the episode where they go to the amusement park. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. And Jan's busting out of that tank top. Yeah, with those plaid, Island. Yeah, yeah, those plaid pants. You're like, yeah. wow, Jan's got it going on. Yeah, Jan. Some because they they give her that awful curl, like yeah, in front of her ear yes. and the glasses in season four, and she has that throughout the opening credits. Even when she doesn't mm-hmm. have the glasses or the curl anymore, she still has that. And it's like, oh, huh, why are they doing that to her? But it was yeah. In season five, the skirts drop right above the knee, and it's very interesting. That's a uh, that's the one fashion. Um, thing in history that I'm interested in, you know. That's just, that's just me. That's just me. But uh, that's a little bit of a tangent. But um, Alice is awesome. So let's uh, back to everybody Christmas. Oh yeah, right. I'm not even sure where we left off, Joanna. Wally, uh, Joanna. <laughs> oh, we were talking about the Bradys. But anyway, Joanna, your any Christmas Bradys, uh, very big Christmas thoughts. Well, I like that they actually included a clip from the 1969 yes. Christmas episode oh, yes. from the series in this. Uh, TV movie, you know, 19 years later, um, we see Cindy once again saying that Santa's better than a doctor. He's, or this man is better than a doctor. He's Santa Claus. And then we also see uh, 
Florence Henderson saying, Oh, come all ye faithful, which yes. really then connects with the whole family around uh, the class right. buildings, standing vigil, as you said, uh, hoping that Mike comes out of the building safe and they all join in to sing, Oh, come all ye faithful again. I love that pairing, that twinning yes. that they do. That's really meaningful. And I, I know they show another uh, flashback clip here in camping. Uh, yes. Oh, that's uh, right. That's also from the first season, a yes. camping we will go. Mm-hmm. And, and I like those flashback clips. And if, if we're going to ever have flashback clips in a Christmas story, <laughs> it's hard to say, isn't it? In anything. Flashback. <laughs> it, <clears throat> I mean, flashback clips are often cheap and they're, you know, overused. But if you're ever going to do that, it is good to do it in a Christmas story because in a lot of ways, Christmas is a time where we spend a lot of time reflecting and remembering and sharing those memories again with family and friends. And so to do that in a Christmas story, if you're ever going to do it, it seems appropriate to do it at Christmas, but I wish they would have done it more. They yeah. only, they only do that camping uh, short clip and then the voice of Christmas. They could have done more clips. That yeah, would have been okay with me. They just had so much new story. That's true too. I, I they mean, kind we, of did because everyone had to get something. Yeah, when you think about it, they had to cram in a lot because they had and, to tell you where the kids were, and then they had to pick a few stories. Like I think Wally got a lot of attention, and Marsha and um, Bobby got a lot of attention. I kind of like Bobby's story. Bobby's actually probably has the most interesting story because his plot line is like, what? What was he? What was he going to school for? Business management? Something is like that. that. Yeah. Grad school for business, yeah. yeah. And now he wants to be a race car driver. I mean, I love that. That that's actually kind of that's actually kind of a cool. Yeah, it was a cool story, and I think that it kind of shows. Like, I mean, it's it's interesting. So Joanna was talking about how they they made the parents look contemporary, but they really made the whole show feel contemporary. You mm-hmm. know, like with all these different stories, everybody was experiencing some form of yes. like something that was happening to that we could relate to in the eighties. Yeah, Peter and his uh, and his female boss, yeah. who was gorgeous. Why did he dump her? She's lovely. Yeah. What? Where's she from? I feel like uh, I've seen I don't her know if I things. know her, but I think she's really pretty, and I thought she fit in really well yeah with the show as a whole i guess is it carol houston is that the actress mm. she kind of looks like um just a little bit and probably not enough the lady from sex in the city kim cattrall oh a bit yeah yeah just a little yeah. probably in the eyes maybe the kind of wide-eyed sort of but uh and i thought it was it's too bad that he didn't end up with his boss because i guess as the brady's show ended up it would have been really interesting to deal with that sort of female boss dynamic mm. and they just dropped it Sounds like. She she replaced that actress replaced uh, uh, on the sitcom The Charmings. She replaced Caitlin O'Haney as Snow oh. White, which Caitlin O'Haney is one of my favorite final gals. She's one of my favorite actresses. Period. Yes, and and so that that's pretty interesting that uh, that that that's her. That's two lovely ladies. The great Carol Houston. Wow, that's I uh, one one of the things I don't know if you guys thought this, but. I I love the way that the movie begins and it's really about Carol and Mike planning this sneaky trip for, you know, it's like one of them wants to take the other to Japan. One of them wants to take the other to Greece. And so as they're setting it up, they call all the kids and tell the kids, we're going to Japan. We're going to Greece. And no one actually says, hey, you know. (laughs) Mom called and said, you know, we're going to, but the, the, and the lovely thing about it is it's like 17 or 18 minutes in, there's a scene in the real estate office. They're both there on either sides of like a cubicle partition. Then they sort of stand up and say, 
oh my gosh, we both thought the same thing. And sort of the way it's shot and edited and acted, it feels like the end of an episode. Yeah, it does, me. doesn't it? it? It feels like the end of an episode. And then when you cut back to um, them sitting with Alice at the table in the living room discussing what to actually do with the money, it feels almost like we're kind of revving up again. And whatever it is they're drinking, could someone please tell me what it is that they're drinking when they sit at the table? They're like three little bottles with – it looks like a grape drink or something. And I sat there thinking, what the hell is that? They're drinking. I don't even remember. Right. <laughs> right there. I saw that yesterday and I was like, what are they drinking? You pay attention. But there is an awful, as as was mentioned before, this, this movie is really structurally sound. There is it, a yes. good um, way that it flows. And I think that's what you're pointing out there with their travel plans in the beginning. And then as it moves on and continues to evolve, it really does uh, structurally feel satisfying. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's what like the, um from like the, Brady Bunch and Gilligan's Island and, and such. I think the the Schwartz guys they they had the sort of the story structure down for how you tell a, a good story. Whether they're hilariously funny or not, actually, my favorite of the Schwartz brothers is Elroy. And Elroy, unfortunately, was involved. Elroy wrote. Two- <laughs> I, I'm sorry. This this is a little side tangent because when when we saw the I think it's Lloyd and Sherwood wrote it. I yes, think. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah. And when their names come up came up, I said, oh, I wish Elroy was involved. And my wife said, oh, yeah, because two of our favorite Green Acres episodes, the one where Eleanor the cow swallows the transistor oh, radio. Oh, I love that oh, episode. That is, that's by. one of my favorites, too. Yes, and 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 they're um and they have the music contest going, yes. and so the music is playing. You know, it's songs like uh, "I'm Your Pizza Mama," and I had to, <laughs> yeah. I had to give you and songs. What's the other song title is? I'm going to give you a shot in the head for making me live in this dump, and <laughs> and they and all the songs sound the same, and the only person who recognizes it is Oliver. But because of the way Green Acres works, everyone thinks he's crazy. For thinking that they all sound the same, Oliver. Uh, yep. And then the the other episode Elroy wrote was the one with where one of the chickens is laying square eggs. Oh, I don't remember that one. Oh, fantastic! Square is not around, and it's sort of like Elroy Schwartz. He wrote two of the, I think, funniest, if not weirdest, episodes of a show that is probably one of the weirdest shows around. So it's like, oh, I wish Elroy was involved because I think. I I, la- I chuckled a couple times during Very Brady Christmas, but I think if Elroy had been there, I might have laughed out loud. Elroy forever. Elroy, he he he's 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 my favorite Schwartz. You know what? It wasn't until you started bringing up the Schwartz brothers that I realized there was anybody aside from Sherwood Schwartz. I hate to admit that, but I didn't <laughs> know that Elroy. there was like a factory of Schwartzes churning out Hollywood product. Elroy wrote the first regular episode of the Six Million Dollar Man. Where, oh where wow! He, really? He go yeah. Where you mean he past goes, the super spy stuff or at the or past the, the past the past the three TV movies? Okay. The, the um, the, it's it's an episode where he goes to a town where everyone is just like apparently dead on the street. It was hilarious. Well, um, you know Oscar <laughs> Goldman, he was always a hoot. Um, Babe. But but it's 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 not hilarious, but it is imaginative and and well written. So. He's my favorite Schwartz, but Sherwood and Lloyd, I think, do a nice job. They tell a good story, they do, and it's it's 
it's a very satis very bread Christmas I think is a very satisfying because this was the time during the eighties when they had all the um reunion movies. Yeah, well reunion movies were so big that Return to Mayberry and Perry Mason's Return came yes. out the same year and they were the top two highest rated movies of that year. I think that was eighty five. And I'm sure that there were reunion movies before that. And I think eighty five was the Leave It to Beaver reunion too. And yeah, right around and um, I'm telling you, it was in. There was a Bonanza reunion. There was there was two Eight Is Enough reunion TV movies that I can remember. Was um, Susan Richard in in either of those? You know what? I don't remember. I just remember that Tommy became kind of a jerk, <laughs> and I hated Tommy's character in the later episodes. And Joni became like this really well-to-do actress, and she was super oh. annoying. But I do really like that actress. Well, that that was the, the ones I was thinking of. Is the be, there was a Beverly Hillbillies? No, oh, I, I saw, no, I saw the Green Acres one. Oh yeah, that that I was going to say. My least favorite is the Green Acres one. <laughs> Excuse me. Oh, I liked yeah, it. I, I think. I I when it aired, I was like thirteen or fourteen, and I'd been I started writing when I was like ten years old. Not that I wrote anything mature, but I was writing. And even I knew when I started watching Return of Green Acres that something was wrong. Don't be a hater. No, well, <laughs> well, no, the thing about it is that almost every episode of that show was written by the same two guys, Jay Summers and Dick Chevrolet. Dick Chevrolet was dead. Jay Summers was almost dead. And so the, the TV movie was written by two other guys. And you can tell almost immediately that those two guys have not watched Green Acres. It feels wrong immediately. Look. And I, I've don't hate. The I've player. had a copy. I've had a copy of that on VHS for almost thirty years, <laughs> and I have not got past the first half hour. You have to try it again. I actually don't remember. I do know I saw it though. I do know my parents saw because my uh, my dad is his favorite TV show. Yeah, that's I. I was I was I was a little broken hearted that I wasn't. That's actually I think I've read in the Hooterville handbook that when the cast got the script, they all went to Eddie Albert and said, "This isn't very good. Please talk to the network." And he went to the network, and the network said, "Nope, you got to do it. Aww. You've all signed contracts." But uh, that has nothing to do. Thanks with Thanks for bringing it on Christmas. a downer. No, no, I, I was talking about reunion movies and Get Smart Again. Oh yeah, I have that. Funny. I haven't. I no, that's, I saw it, but I haven't seen it in years. That's very funny. Get Smart Again. They 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 got it. And, but I'm a fan of the Nude Bombs, so I don't know that I'm. I think I liked that too when it came out, but I don't remember I it so much I like now. It too. But um, yeah, reunion movies are really fun. Um, yeah, I really like them. I mean, obviously, you can sometimes put people, but I even was watching reunion movies into like the '90s. Like, do you remember the um, Growing Pains yeah. reunion movie? No, I didn't. See I watched it. I watched it. Dallas follow-up movies. Oh, uh, you know what? I haven't watched them because I actually never finished the whole run of Dallas. Oh, yeah, you should go. Yeah, to the and end. I want to finish the end yeah. um, before I do it. But I have all the TV movies, and of course, I loved all of the Waltons movies. Sure. Those are yeah. amazing. Sure. I'm trying to think what else. I mean, Perry Mason returns to me. I guess Return of Mayberry is really the movie where yeah, people are like, one, yeah. we've got to do that. But for me, it's Perry Mason returns because think about what it started. It started a 26 movie yeah, run. Psych. Wow. It was huge. It was huge. And I think every one of those movies did fairly well. Even the least popular movies were still like top 20. Yeah. And there were eight Rockford Files. And then oh, Columbo that's right. Came back. Columbo right. came there back. There were eight and... Rockford Fall reunion movies? I believe so. Oh, I, I only have so. like one of them. I believe so, yeah. And he and the big thing is that he just uh he now has a bigger trailer. He lives in the same <laughs> spot. He He's trying to sell it. Yeah. Oh, is he okay? <laughs> yeah. I just watched a bunch of the first ones uh, was, in, uh, in a row. And he's... he's trying to sell his trailer, but of course he's, you know, not 
he's not doing very good at it. Is Beth Davenport in all of those? I don't remember. Oh, I love her. I love yeah. Gretchen Corbett. Gretchen I love Corbett Gretchen Corbett. Yeah, so they were really cool. But I mean, to me, Perry Mason is like the pinnacle of it just because of so many movies. And I guess the Brady's would be another pinnacle of it because uh, it started a new series for them, which I don't think they were necessarily thinking of when they made the TV movie. I'm not positive of that, but I think so. What what I'm seeing here is I'm just looking at some notes and sort of like one note I have says that the reason why Marie McCormick wasn't involved is it was apparently possibly meant to be like TV movies. Oh, rather okay. than a series, and she couldn't get involved with that. Sort of the way um, for the uh, Brady Bunch Variety Hour. Yeah, Jan uh, stepped Eve, out. Yeah, Eve Plum wanted to do one, but they insisted that she get involved in a bunch. And she said, I don't know that I can sing and dance and watch Peter fall into a pool that often. <laughs> yeah. and, and I don't know how often, like, you know, Rip Taylor can, you know, come into my life. You but, know, uh, Robert Reed really liked doing the variety show because, um, you know, Robert Reed saw, he knew when he did the Brady Bunch early on that they was going to stereotype him and it was going to be kind of difficult for him to find other kinds of work afterwards. And I think that might be why he had kind of that conflict with Sherwood Schwartz a lot during the production. Yeah. Um, but he liked the variety show because nobody else was asking Mike Brady to sing and dance. <laughs> and um and he was like you know what this is something i've never really done and he and i think of all the brady stuff i'm not positive of this but i i think of all the brady stuff that was what he really liked mm-hmm. doing and he loved all the kids he was close to them yeah. his whole life joanna have you seen the brady variety hour i haven't uh-uh. y- you know what i'd recommend it to you <laughs> I, I i i think it's a hoot i i think it's a lot of fun it's no brady brides <laughs> i which I haven't seen. But that, the Brady Brides is also kind of insulated. I mean, outside of the TV movie, you only see Jan and Marsha, and then you see Alice and Mrs. Brady, but you don't see anybody else. Oh, wow. Okay. I, uh... In the run, because they just wanted to make it about Jan and Marsha, which makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. You know, once you have Philip in the mix, you don't need anybody else. That's, that's true. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> you and Philip. I love Philip. If you're listening, Philip. I love you. Happy Can I, birthday, Mr. President. <laughs> I'll, I'll mute myself if you want to sing a little more. No, I don't. I thought maybe it was Christmas. Maybe you wanted to... Uh... To, to sing holiday? No, I don't think so. I'm going to dive in. Unless we have anything else we want to say, I'm going to dive into the trivia I dug up. I just want to say that what does everyone think of the scene where the guys bring in the tree and they're singing and the gals are in the kitchen and they're singing? <laughs> And they all approach each other. I felt like I I almost ran out of the room. That was almost a little too much for me. Was it too much in a good way or a bad way? That's the question. I don't know. That's the problem. <laughs> it's a tough well, one. It, the scene didn't last very long. It's just about sort of tone and about bringing in the, the holiday into the storyline. But it, I saw it more as a part of the structure of the whole uh, movie. And it is a very Brady thing to divide the genders. Yeah. Yeah. And to give them, you know, the boys one thing to do and the girls another thing to do. And it that, was just an extension of that. And that wasn't even that odd even by the 80s. It's not like so much had changed that, you know, you had yeah. Who's the Boss where uh, Angela was bringing home the bacon, but that wasn't always the norm on TV. I, th- I think when I watched it with my wife, I was like, "What? what's going on right here? But then when I watched it yesterday to take some notes, I was like, okay, I get it. They're They're actually the guys were singing and the gals were all in the kitchen and they were like, Oh, when they get to this point in the song, why don't we sing? So it felt less like a strange musical 
moment and more just like the family being in sync, sort of. Or insane. Yes. <laughs> insane or insane. That would well, be N insane. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah, because this is where we really start to see the cracks in the Brady Bunch, mm. which can be really fulfilling for some people. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think your life is so good, Marsha. I mentioned this earlier before the, the call, uh, before the podcast started, but what is Peter wearing oh. uh, during the scene when Bobby is telling him? <laughs> yeah, what did you about, say he was? He's, he's like, he's like the, the hunky Ebenezer Scrooge or something. What is he doing? Yeah, like in I don't know about nightshirts. Night you yeah. know, they all were wearing weird sleepwear. Yeah. Jan, well, was, I kinda, except, Jan was layering, but I liked her outfit. Yeah. I think Jan felt like she was in the right time period, at least. Well, Whereas yeah. Bobby's eight Victorian nightmare. I think Jan had to cover up a little because I think she's curvier than people realize. Oh. And um, and I think that maybe that was part of it was to get her in something kind of cute, but also like not distract too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus, the character's really straight-laced anyway. I mean, it kind of makes sense that she wouldn't show very much. Did anybody else notice that the the next-door neighbor that um, Mike introduces Wally to, who's the toy oh, yeah. business guy, his robe. Okay, first of all, he's standing in his front yard in a robe. <laughs> but um, his robe on the sleeve, he's got a tag hanging. It's, it's, it's oh, clearly, I didn't notice that. It's clearly visible the entire time he's on camera. <laughs> I, I keep thinking, every time I see it, I see it again, and I remember, and I'm wondering why the wardrobe people didn't just yank that off. <laughs> Before he I, went on camera. Because it's calm. That's the part that El... What's his name? Elroy? Elroy. That's Elroy came that was, in. And that was Elroy's part. Script doctor. A little script doctor. <laughs> Maybe he's so wealthy and so well-to-do with his toys that he has a new robe every day. <laughs> I like that. But, and he just didn't have time. That makes yeah. sense. There's so much it, characterization we can put to that character. <laughs> I, 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 was just, I was just actually thinking about Wally. Right there, and that that street they're running down is it's is the street soaking wet that they're jogging on? Am I? I can't right? remember to be honest with you. You guys pay it's... way more attention to like the oh, okay. what's happening like on the set design and stuff. I'm just like Philip. Phil, oh, of course, of course. Well, maybe let's talk about some some background. So the Bradys, oh. they're this great family, and we all love them. Well, here's what's really interesting. So very Brady Christmas, which originally ran on December 18th, 1988, actually ran against two TV movies. So I don't know how often that's happened, but on NBC was a movie called She Was Marked for Murder with Stephanie Powers and Lloyd Bridges. And on ABC was a rerun of A Smoky Mountain Christmas, mm. which we might hit Ooh. soon because <laughs> Lee Majors and Dolly Parton together is too much for me. So um, from People Magazine, they gave the Brady a very Brady Christmas, a C-. And they wrote, before long, TV will run out of old shows worthy of reunions and will be stuck with super train rides again. But things are not <laughs> yet that desperate. Not quite. No, first we have the Brady Bunch to bring back together 19 years after they began. Mom, Dad, Allison, and Maid, and all the kids except young Cindy, who has been replaced with the new actress, return home for the holidays and a few flashbacks. Remember a camping trip? How could I forget? Oh, but there's trouble in paradise. One marriage is breaking up. One son-in-law is out of a job. One son dropped out of business school. Alice has been deserted by Sam the butcher. And dad has a deal with a greedy developer. Yes, it looks like the ugly 80s, but it's not. It's still the Brady Bunch where every ending is happy, ludicrously happy. That sounds like a good review to me. Yeah, yeah. I know. Actually, it's, yeah. 
And for the people that always criticize the Brady's for being impossibly perfect or impossibly happy and cheerful, that's exactly my draw. That's why I watch. That's the charm that I always want to see again and again when I'm in the mood for Brady Bunch. And I don't see that as a criticism. I see it as its strength. Here's the thing. There's a balance. So like Dan and I were talking, Dan brought up a really good point about how in the 70s, there were a lot of really good, very realistic shows like All in the Family and Barney Miller. But that towards the end of the 70s, we started to look back to the 50s. with, And we had a lot of shows that took place in the 50s, Happy Days being the one I'm thinking of, and Laverne and Shirley. Uh, and we wanted that sort of manicured lawn, sort of goofy humor, you know what I mean, happy ending after 22 minutes. And I think that there's room for both of those types of shows in the world. Um, and the Brady Bunch struck a balance originally at a time when, I mean, there was a lot of goofy television on, but uh, you know what? It was a lot like um, Petticoat Junction, right? Mm -hmm. It was just a a show you could watch. Everything ended well. Everybody was beautiful. And it was, it came out during a time when things were the exact opposite of that. Right. You know, and there's still plenty of like Kojak was there and all those other cop shows and everything that was still there too. But you know, you can't do that all the time. You know, it's like people who watch the news 24 hours a day. How can you do that to yourself? You watch the news yes. for a little bit, and then you watch something else to help you, you know, relax. Right. And the uh, Brady, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Joanna. I wanted to point out that, you know, in your introduction that you read from your uh, blog that you wrote about the Brady Bunch, or, you know, the, A Very Brady Christmas, you also cited the monkeys and Star Trek. Yes. And it, you... To, to reference uh, the Brady Bunch. And I thought that was actually quite uh, apt. That was, uh, that was meaningful to me. Those three shows are really their own unique things that really have lived outside of television and outside of their peers. Yes. And uh, I thought that was good. Yeah, well, they were all, it's interesting too, because although the Brady Bunch lasted longer, it was never like a super successful show, but they all like, I mean, when Star Trek was what, like two or three seasons, right? And three. And when it was over, people were like, I'm sure a lot of people, especially at the network, were like, all right, we're done. And look at it now. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at it. It's it's like amazing. And the monkeys, like Davy Jones, when he passed away, right, not only was that a huge loss for so many people, but when they did their reunion tour afterwards to celebrate him, that was like selling out everywhere. And I mean, these guys are like 70, right? And people are still getting in line and like, going to sold out venues to see them and the Brady Bunch is very much the same way now I think it was wise after the death of Robert Reed to not go back to it because you just can't without Mr. Brady and so I'm glad that they didn't try to do that but I think when you were talking about the fan fiction and how Mr. Brady died I think that might be sort of because he really did die not too soon after the Brady's you know what I mean and so if they could have kept it rolling for like another year then they could have killed off Mr. Brady yeah. I, I I almost wouldn't mind seeing one more Brady thing, official Brady thing, you know, post post Mike's passing. Mm. I don't know, yeah, well d- done well. It could it might be um, Sure, I'm sure they could do it. I don't know, but to me Robert Reed Without is Alice there, I guess. Oh too. yeah, and Alice has gone too. It would be really hard. It'd just be Mrs. I guess, Brady. Well, the kids Barf. you could you could give the kids Barf. <laughs> Oh, oh, Mrs. Brady, barf. I don't know. I got to take my six kids to the grocery store, but Alice has to take the bus. I'm never getting over it. Yeah, no, you're not. I know that tone. 
And that is, yeah, I'm never getting over it, so. Yeah. But anyway, let me go back to my trivia before I get rid of it. Oh, yes. Um, it was shot the summer before it aired, and Barry Williams had considered that this would be his last appearance as Greg Brady, feeling that it answered the burning question, whatever happened to Greg? Uh, Bobby was apparently a natural blonde and had dyed his hair as a kid when he was on the Brady Bunch, which I did not know. So that was his, uh, the first time we actually saw his natural hair color on television. Um, radio hosts Mark and Brian played uh, concerned onlookers in the crowd at the end. And you might remember they were also in Jason Goes to Hell. They played two cops in that. I don't know if you remember that. It had a rating of 25.1 or a 39 share and was seen in 25.5 million homes. Uh, the only show that beat it for the week uh, was an airing of The Cosby Show. And looking back, we realized how stupid that was, don't we? <laughs> Yeah, I think we do. Um, that's all I'm going to say for my Bill Cosby comments. Um, and I will tell you about some of the ratings. So this aired around Christmas, obviously. But to start off, She Marked for Murder, which ran against it, ended up ranking at number 25. Smoky Mountain Christmas came in at 65, mm. probably because it was a rerun. Um, another Christmas special listed in the Nielsen's for the week was I'll Be Home for Christmas, which came in at number 15 and was seen in over 16 million homes. A Chipmunk Christmas ranked at 54. And a nightmare before Christmas, or a nightmare, the night before Christmas came in at 55, and a Smurf Christmas was number 58, ranking higher than Smoky Mountain Christmas. Huh. And that's it for my trivia. Yay! Yeah. I, 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 uh, Joanna, do you have any Birdie Christmas trivia? Uh, who remembers the location of the building that collapses? Oh, I don't. I'm not it's sure. The corner of 34th and Oak. Oh yes. So when oh, Mike yeah. finally does emerge, the the news journalist is the news anchor there on site is able to say it's another miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. <laughs> they really went crazy those Schwartz boys. They, they really it. they had like a they had like a, a a board covered in index cards with a miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Yeah, they're uh, knocking off all the, the, yeah, the famous yeah. references. So here's a question: Do you think if Carol? And the kids, like, you think if they decide not to have a reunion mm -hmm. and Mike still had to go to that building because it was collapsing, if the kids hadn't been there to sing, oh, come on, you faithful, do you think Mike would have died? Joanna? <laughs> <laughs> I love this crazy hypothetical. Um, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Because it was their love that saved him, right? Right. Isn't that part of what makes a Christmas uh, movie is it's the power of the family. It's the power of uh, everyone yeah. coming together. So if everybody didn't come together, if the family wasn't all together, Dead. the magic wouldn't be there. Dead. So, Dan? Yeah, I, I, I'm afraid. I think he might have passed. <laughs> oh, that's so gentle. Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, but but it's set up early on the moment you know that they're they've they're going to use the same Christmas vacation fun thing to do it. You know, something set up right there. Well, you so know the some... evil, the evil land developer oh, threatening boy. Mrs. Brady that, that way. He's horrible. Oh, that was a, that, that was a scene there. Yeah. Where he calls her up and just, it's like, Ooh. well, he brings up a really good point. Cause she's like, I don't interfere. And he's like, you sure interfered when you wanted your husband to build it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Ooh, and she's like, that's true. But out. <laughs> Wow. And I'm like, wow, he really, he's like the only guy in the history of the Brady's that's ever nailed Mrs. Brady on anything. Yeah. Wow. Oh, Mike, now I, could you imagine that if they'd done like a what if very Brady Christmas <laughs> where they, they never invited the family and oh, local so architect, sad. Mike Brady passes away and. Yes. So, I mean, fate really intervened. And it's like, you see, and they show just like two bums, like just singing, oh, come all you faithful in an alley, but that love. That's not, not enough love or ripple. <laughs> not, 
<laughs> Carol's home is. A, do, would Alice have in that one? Would Alice have had the problem with Sam, or would it? Yeah, I think everything would have been the same, but because there's no family there. Although Sam might, yeah, I think Sam would have still come back for her because Sam, whatever loser. Yeah. I think his younger woman woke up and was like, "Gross." Oh my God! What is this guy with all the butcher paper on the wall? Oh, so gross! Are you Jeffrey Dahmer? <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys notice um, the actor that plays Sam the Butcher here in this uh, TV? No, movie? somebody mentioned his name on my blog, but I didn't write it down. Yeah, he's, he's... famous. Oh, so yeah. it's Arquette. That's right. I they didn't know that. Oh, they wow. didn't cast Al Melvin again, yes. who played him on the TV series. They hired somebody new. And do you know anybody, any other roles he's played? Are you familiar with him he's as an Scream. actor? He's, he's in the first Scream. I don't know if he's in the other ones. Oh, he's in Scream 2 here. He, uh, with his son, David. I, and I've seen him in lots of things, but I, I, really I know him because his, all of his kids are famous. Yeah. Rosanna, Patricia. Like yeah, he's got a, a fantastic family. Wasn't he's waiting for Guffman, Louis Arquette, right? Isn't he the uh, Beans Don't Get Me Talking About Beans, I think? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm gonna look. I'm gonna He's look in, him give up. Give me a break. Because Lou, Lou, there is an Arquette, an older Arquette, in Waiting for Guffman. Well, he would who, be the older Arquette. That's probably oh, him. Yeah, he's the one who narrates the uh, the the play that they put on. I he think he's in off. Best in Show. He is in Best in Show. He has my favorite scene in Best in Show where they're watching uh, Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara's dog in the beginning, and he's just sitting with the woman, and she says something like, I thought it was going to rain today, and she looks up, and it's not raining, and she says, I was so glad because it hadn't rained that it's a really lovely scene. Hey, are yeah. you, Joanna, are you referencing his appearance on the Waltons as Jefferson? I am, oh, yes. Oh, okay. You know, that Another, was, that was uh, later in the run, and I'm not sure I remember him. He played Aaron's boss during World oh, War II. She, okay. works at, she works at yes. the furniture company. Yes. And uh, he, he plays the boss, J.D. Pickett. Wow. I don't think I remembered that. I must have known it, though, because I watched the late era Waltons in, like, 2004. I think it was the last time I saw it. I really liked the later ones because they got kind of goofy, but I loved it. It was kind of soap opera-y. And I think Aaron is a hit-and-miss actress, but she's so lovely. <laughs> and I love that she put herself out there. Yeah. Because there's that episode where that guy dies in war, and I think he was, like, either a boyfriend of hers or somebody was interested in her. Do you yes. remember that? Yes. And, and when she's, like, upset about his death, it's like, oh, it's so cute. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and, and that's, that happened to an awful lot of young women. You know, you're yes. in love oh, with yeah. someone, your, your boyfriend, your fiancé goes off to war, and he doesn't come back. I mean, that is a touching uh, storyline. Um, and it's a struggle. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, loser Kit's cool. Yeah. I didn't, I can't believe I didn't realize that was him because he's a very distinctive voice and I should have recognized it. Yeah. I didn't realize. I, I think I was just looking at him going, that's not Sam. Why didn't Sam come back? Do we know? I don't know. Huh. More money. We should figure right. that out. He was holding out for more money. I'm Sam the freaking butcher. <laughs> come on. Who do you... The heart and soul of this freaking show. <laughs> this thing pivots on my return at the end. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> in a oh. in a weird TV sort of way, it's 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 good that they sort of recast Sam the Butcher since he treats Alice so poorly. Yeah. I can tell yeah. myself somewhere, you know, deep deep down that it's not really the real Sam. It's it's a different you know, Sam. Yeah, that's right. It didn't count. This doesn't this doesn't matter. It's oh, not it's the real Sam. Random. It's... Who is the mechanic in the Very Brady Christmas? Does anyone remember a mechanic? 
Oh, in the with Bobby and the Oh, so that oh. actor is Bart Braverman, who used to be on Match Game all the time and he was also on Vegas, the T V series. Oh, wow. And I just oh. see his name here in the credits and I was like, Well, I don't remember Bart Braverman in the very Brady Christmas, but I guess he was. I think he has like one line. Oh, he's the best. He's also in that movie Alligator. He's the annoying oh, panelist who movie, gets yeah. killed early on. Yeah, he's a great actor. I love how the moment Bobby uh, is racing his car around, suddenly the uh, Waylon guitar takes off. <laughs> it's awesome. It's all action all the time. And I think a wailing guitar shows up a little later, but I forget where exactly. I think it's when Jan and Philip make up. (laughs) (laughs) That's the Waka Jawaka. Yeah, yeah, that's when, oh my God. There's too much makeup sex in this movie. There is quite a lot. (laughs) I'm a little torn on it. For being something I thought was so wholesome. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Well, not to put a pun out there, but I think we're going to put this to bed. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And I'm just going to do, we just have a little bit more feedback and then I just want to leave our contact information and then we'll go for the night. So we just got a few more minutes. So, um, so caffeinated Joe, who I think we all know here, um, left us a, just something about Joanna. I wanted to read, I think this was from my website. So he wrote exciting news. Oh, this is where I posted that Joanna was joining us for the show. I follow Joanna's post and Twitter feed. She is a Christmas TV movie and special she's a christmas tv movie and special pro you're and you're going to talk about a very brady christmas freaking love that movie and watch it every year can't wait to hear all your thoughts haven't seen the other films yet give to a christmas gift to us all oh that's nice yes oh thank you joe Joe. he's a really really nice guy and this is this is the time of year where if you go on his um Oh. His Christmas Tumblr, he puts up a new Christmas image every year, and I uh, uh, every year, every day, and um, and uh, I actually uh, I I tend to uh, uh, usually put them in the background on my computer at oh, work. Oh, cool! So, awesome. so a lot of great I'll have stuff. to get if you can get the URL for that, so we can give it on the next show. Oh yes, yes, I you, will that'd be great. I'd love to throw that for the next Christmas show. Yeah, yeah. which we're doing tomorrow. So. Um, Mm -hmm. so, and then we got something from Janelle who also left this on the website. Wow. I really enjoyed this episode. Please don't, I think that was our last episode. Please don't apologize for all your tangents, especially when they involve manimal as they are right with recommended viewing. I'd request that you list all of the related titles mentioned during the podcast, but that would be pretty overwhelming. I've written a few down and managed to watch the five of me for the first time. And this house possessed for the first time since, since it originally aired. I was so excited when you mentioned that Parker Stevenson gem, it was a movie I remembered fondly, especially his singing act and that shower scene, but hadn't take the time to revisit it. This podcast is so amazing and is a great celebration of when TV movies were big events that you look forward to all week. Looking forward to more episodes. Yay. Yay. Thank you, Janelle. I thought that was really Thanks, sweet. Janelle. That's um, nice. Yes. I know. We've been getting a lot of really good feedback. Oh, and so tomorrow, in our next episode, it won't be tomorrow when they hear it, but um, we'll be talking about Bernard and the Genie. And Melanie, Yay. who posts on my Facebook page all the time, wrote, I love Bernard and the Genie, one of my favorite holiday movies. And then we got one more piece of feedback on Twitter from somebody named Rusting Willpower, um, who's really cool, and I'll go a little bit into them in a second. So they tweeted to me that they were watching Bad Ronald for the first time so that they could listen to our latest episode. Then they reported back, and they said, definitely a fun watch. My sister kept saying, oh, my God, this is absolutely crazy. So concerned with what was going to happen. And then she wrote, oh, I meant to do this with Nate because I thought I'd get a kick out of it. I'm convinced Ronald was rehabilitated, eventually married Alice from Friday the 13th, 1 and 2, and they lived happily ever after. (laughs) And I thought that was such a funny response. (laughs) So uh, Rusting Willpower does something that's called 
the National Solo Album Month. So you know how everybody does that national novel, write a novel in a month thing? Yeah. They yeah. actually do it for music, too. And you're supposed to make an album in one month. And um, this person did it. And it's uh, they did it last year, too. I've only listened to this latest one. Um, they call the album Hybrid. And it's actually a tribute to the X-Files. And I... Love it. It's um, I think it's missing one season. Every song is dedicated, I think, to either an episode from that season or the season as a whole. I think it's an episode. And um, one song ended up being an instrumental because they didn't have time to do the lyrics. And I think they had to skip a season to complete it. But it's a really, really wonderful kind of airy synth poppy record. And you can download it. I've already listened to it like three times. Um, I think it's wonderful. So uh, you can find them, their website at www.restingwillpower, which is R-U-S-T-I-N-G-W-I-L-L-P-O-W-E-R.net. And I highly recommend you go out there and just sample some of the music. I think you really like it. Um, so that's really cool. So uh, that was all the feedback for the week. We won't have any feedback tomorrow because awesome. this is everything. Um, if Anybody is listening and they would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at, at TV Mayhem Podcast or on Facebook, which is just the Made for TV Mayhem show. And you can also email us at TV Mayhem Podcast at gmail.com. Um, and so for our next episode, we are going to be doing another very special episode. And we're only going to be talking about one movie, um, which is a British Christmas film called Bernard and the Genie with Lenny Henry, Alan Cumming, and Rowan Atkinson. Um, and then we're going to pretty much hand it over to Joanna and, uh, talk about uh, just Christmas specials and their meaning to us and our favorite Christmas specials. And we'll have some clips of, uh, Christmas promos and, uh, it should be a guaranteed good time. So, yes. uh, join us again, uh, for the next episode and I'm going to, uh, oh my God, I was going so good and I forgot what word I wanted to use. We are going to exit the show with uh, Mrs. Brady and the gang singing Oh Come All Ye Faithful. So, good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Oh, come ye, oh, come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him.
Don't be sorry. Just be Wally.